For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. You're listening to TheMarvelStudios.net. You're listening to Red Pill Radio. Only on DelmarvaStudios.net. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Welcome to Red Pill Radio, on DelmarvaStudios.net. We are glad you chose the red pill. While the red pill will be more difficult to swallow than the blue pill, you chose to be awake. Join us as we hunt for the unpleasant truth, represented by the red pill, while the others choose the blue pill, and remain in blissful ignorance. We stream live nightly at 9pm Eastern Standard Time. Call the show and prompt it at 302-526-4761. You can also hop in the chat room which can be found under the radio player on BelmarvaStudios.net. Without any further ado, let's get to the show. Here is your host, George Hobbs. Good evening, everybody. I hope you're having a great day. It's Wednesday, December 9th, 2020. If you're listening live, thanks for sticking with us. Uh, we're recording for the podcast now. Tonight, we're going to talk about Ted Gunderson. Before we do that, don't forget... Like us on Twitter, at Delmarva Studios. Anytime we go live or drop a podcast, uh, we kick it out through Twitter. Obviously, if you're listening live, you are listening through DelmarvaStudios.net. The chat room is right below the radio player. Feel free to drop us a message anytime, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Or you might be listening on our Google app, Delmarva Studios. Check that out. Hopefully, we'll have our iTunes app up and running by the end of the year. And lastly, your emails, questions, comments, concerns. If you'd like to join us on the show, we'd love to have you. Send us an email to delmarvastudios at mail.com. Today, we're going to play a very special audio clip for you. It's Ted Gunderson, born November 7th, 1928. He was a FBI special agent. And at one point, he was actually in charge of one of the largest FBI offices in the country. That would be Los Angeles. Um, he also worked the Marilyn Monroe case and the JFK cases. Um, he was author of the best-selling book, How to Locate Anyone, Anywhere, Without Leaving Home. Obviously, now you can do that at a drop of the hat with the Internet. Um 
He was a big deal in the FBI, but he made his name post-FBI. After retiring from the FBI, uh, Gunderson set up a private investigation firm, Ted Gunderson and Associates, in Santa Monica, California. In 1980, uh, he became a defense investigator for Green Beret doctor Jeffrey McDonald, who uh, had been convicted of the 1970 murders of his pregnant wife and two daughters. Gunderson obtained affidavits from uh, Helena Stockley, confessing her involvement in the murder, which she claimed had in actuality been perpetrated by a satanic cult, which she was a member so that kind of led him into the satanic cults. Uh, he also investigated the most expensive criminal case in U.S. history at the time, the McMartin Preschool Trial in Manhattan Beach, California, which resulted in no convictions. Fast forward to 1995 when he blew the doors off the quote-unquote conspiracy theory world. In a conference in Dallas, Texas... Gunderson warned about the proliferation of secret occultist groups and the danger posed by the New World Order, which George H.W. Bush, the criminal himself, exposed to the world, an alleged shadow government that would be controlling the United States government. He also claimed that a slave auction in which children were sold by Saudi Arabian agents to men had been held in Las Vegas, and that 4,000 ritual human sacrifices are performed in New York City every single year, and that the 1995 bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City was actually carried out by the U.S. government with similar claims to 9-11. Gunderson believed that in the United States there's a secret, widespread network of groups who kidnap children and infants and subject them to ritual abuse and subsequent human sacrifice. So if you think this whole Q movement just started a few years ago, Mr. Gunderson was one of the originals. So I'm going to present to you his... um, probably what he's most famous for this four hour speech. It's actually three hours and four, uh, 42 minutes, his Magnus opus. This is Ted Gunderson uncut. Take the red pill. Thank you very much. It's great to be back in the Midwest. I was raised in Missouri, Iowa, Nebraska. And as a matter of fact, I lived right here in Kansas city in my youth. So the, the greatest people in the world, as far as I'm concerned, and last night I went out and took a little walk, and uh, I was over in Kansas, Topeka, Kansas, and I got a breath of that fresh air because I've lived quite a few years in Los Angeles, so I know I really did enjoy coming back here. Let me just start by saying that after I retired, I learned about a number of matters which were very shocking to me. Before my retirement, when I was in the FBI, Uh, I can honestly say I was never exposed or had no knowledge at all whatsoever of any possible corrupt situations. Of course, I had the privilege of having served under that great American J. Edgar Hoover for 21 years until he passed away in May of 1972. And don't you let our adversaries tell you anything different. 
they have put out disinformation, and he is the victim of an extensive disinformation program that he's a homosexual. He was not a homosexual. Instead of uh, making him a homosexual and a degenerate, I'm sure they would love to say that too. They've tried. I must say he was an American hero. Instead, they've taken people who were sympathetic to the communist movement and made heroes out of them. As far as I'm concerned, schools and streets right today should be named after J. Edgar Hoover. As Ephraim Zimbalis said to me once, I play golf with Ephraim once in a while, when the line is dead, the rats come out of the woodwork, and that's the case with the Mr. Hoover. But anyway, in my bureau career, uh, people have asked me, uh, didn't you see any corruption? No, I did not see any corruption. And uh, possibly because in the Bureau, at the time of my retirement, there were 164 categories. If any cases came in that fell in those 164 categories, we investigated it. Otherwise, it went in what we called a zero basket. And we did a great job. These included kidnapping, bank robbery, extortion, uh, skyjackings. I handled the skyjacking personally and negotiated with the skyjackers July 12, 1972, Philadelphia International Airport. Background checks, Communist Party USA, Black Panthers, internal security espionage, and the list goes on and on and on. We had a great record. I'm sorry to say that the Bureau has changed. There's no question about it. The FBI today, in 1996, is being used by the politicians to further their gains and their goals. So there are a few things that have happened to me, some major matters that have happened to me since my retirement. And most recently, I was giving a lecture in Las Vegas and I sat at the head table next to a gentleman and this gentleman in his day had been in naval intelligence and he was telling me that on December the 4th 1941 three days before Pearl Harbor he was in the communications room in Washington DC a naval intelligence officer and we received the US government received a communication an intercept of Japanese uh, uh, message that had been sent and we had broken the Japanese code and this message stated that we were going to bomb Pearl Harbor on December the 7th. He was very elated to have received this. He passed it up to his superior. His superior passed it on. After the war was over he came back to Washington DC and was told he was going to have to testify. They had a congressional hearing on this. He was given a subpoena. His boss called him in and said, even though you have a subpoena, you're not going to testify. And he said, well, I don't understand this. He says, look, you don't understand now, someday you will. You're not going to testify. And he didn't testify. Now, it's been documented, and I've heard it on a number of occasions, that we knew about Pearl Harbor in advance. This is the first time I've had information directly from a person who was aware of this. I also received some information recently in my tours and lectures and what have you. I did a TV show in Long Beach, California. One of the gentlemen involved in the show was in the U.S. Army at one time. He told me that in the spring of 1973, we had bombed all of the North Vietnamese uh, supply lines. We had mined their harbors. They were cut off. And one of his associates was in the communication room in Saigon. And this is, of course, a classified job. And when he was in this room, he received this message from the North Vietnamese. We surrender unconditionally. He passed it on to his superiors, and all Army personnel were immediately ushered out and replaced by State Department personnel. It was shortly thereafter that Kissinger met 
uh, with the North Vietnamese officials in Paris, France. Why do these things happen? Why did we not take advantage of the advance notice of Pearl Harbor? And why is it necessary for us to uh, be a subservient to North Vietnam when we obviously have won? I think at the end of this lecture, you may have the answer. In fact, I'm sure you'll have the answer. I think you'll understand much better than you do and have in recent years. Anyway, when I first came out of the FBI, as I said, I came out in 1979, Attorney General Griffin Bell hired me to coordinate security for the Pan American Games. Attorney Gr General Griffin Bell was under Jimmy Carter, President Jimmy Carter, and I went to San Juan, Puerto Rico for the summer of 79. Great experience. I lived with the athletes, 5,500 athletes in the, the village there. And I'm happy to report that uh, the uh, America's uh, softball team, girls softball team, I might add, adopted me as their mascot. So I, <laughs> I have a nice softball autographed by all the ladies of our softball team. In fact, I even rode to all the games with them on the bus. But anyway, uh, they won the gold medal, of course. Uh, that's beside the point. But I had a great experience. And I came back and started my own international security consulting firm in Los Angeles, California. And I was a consultant for the 84 Olympics in Los Angeles. And uh, one of my first cases that I handled, I was contacted by some of Dr. Jeffrey R. McDonald's doctor friends. I don't know if you remember the movie Fatal Vision, the book Fatal Vision. Uh, this was a uh, former Green Beret doctor, and uh, he was a doctor at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. On February the 17th, 1970, he was asleep in his living room. It was a house uh, on Castle Drive on the base. It was an open base, however. And he was awakened by two white males, a black male in E6 uh, sergeant stripes with camouflage jacket, and also by a, a white female with a floppy white hat and a long blonde wig. The white female had lights flickering across her face. She was chanting, acid is groovy, kill the pigs, acid is groovy, kill the pigs. Uh, the two white males, one had a knife, one had an ice pick. The black male with the E6 sergeant stripe camouflage jacket on had a 32-inch bed slat. It, we, knew, we found out later it was actually a bed slat, but it was, to McDonald at that time it was just a, 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 a post of some, or a pole of some sort. And Dr. McDonald wrapped, according to him, wrapped his uh, hands and his wrists with his uh, pajama tops and was standing off the blow. While he was fighting with them, he heard his daughter say, Jeff, Jeff, help me, help me. And he, excuse me, he heard his daughter, yeah, it's a five-and-a-half-year-old daughter say that, and his wife yelling, uh, Jeff, Jeff, why are they doing this to me? Why are they doing this to me? Uh, he felt a sharp pain to his right side. He woke probably an hour, hour and 15 minutes later, maybe. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hour and a half. He was half in the living room, half in the hallway. Total silence in the house. He went back. Here was his wife with 26 stab wounds in her chest. Uh, the children had numerous stab wounds in their bodies. Well, all three of them were killed. The government, it was on a government reservation, the government claimed that Dr. McDonald uh, went to bed and uh, he noticed that the five and a half year old child who was sleeping with the mother had wet the bed and he had a big argument with his, with the, the, his wife and because of this argument over the child wetting the bed he wiped out the whole family. Uh, it's absolutely ridiculous. But anyway, so I was asked by some of Dr. McDonald's friends to investigate the case. And uh, I, uh, I told Dr. McDonald, I said, if you're guilty, as soon as I find out you're guilty, I'm not going to investigate any further. If you're innocent, I'll go right to the mat with you. Now, the man, the gentleman had just been convicted in August 1979 of these three murders, uh, even though the murders had, com uh, had uh, been committed some nine years prior to this. There were a number of appeals, and uh, he was not indicted by the grand jury until 1974. So that was the reason for the delay. So I entered the case, and I noticed in reviewing the case, going through records, and I spent hours reading, reading uh, all kinds of material, the court dockets and testimony, etc. I noticed that uh, skin was, uh, that was in Colette's fingernails was turned over to William F. Ivory, who was the chief investigator for the Army, and it disappeared. Dr. McDonald did not have a scratch mark on him. The skin, obviously, was from one of the assailants. Colette being the wife. From skin, you can tell what type of blood the person is who was scratched, right? That was just, that just plain disappeared off the earth. Also, in reviewing the records, I noted that there were 14 uh, candle wax drippings in the house. And remember now, Colette had light flickering across her face. And these candle wax drippings, including one that was in the child's bed uh, sheet, uh, were formed to any other candles and candle wax found in the house. I also noted that an FBI agent, hairs and fibers expert named Paul Stombaugh, lied to the grand jury, and if you want documentation on that, you can read the book Fatal Vision uh, by uh, uh, McGinnis. And uh, in there, it states that he testified before the grand jury and said that the, Colette, that the hair in Colette's right hand was Colette's hair. Well, what happened was they found that Colette had hair in her hand they tested it against Dr. McDonald's. It did not match, so it had to come from someplace. So they said it was Colette's. You cannot say that hair is identical. You can say it's similar. You can say it's cut, pulled, peroxide, what part of the body came from, and it's similar. I noticed also that uh, according to uh, uh, Helena Stokely, I obtained a confession from her uh, on October 25, 1980. I brought her back to L.A. That's a story by and of itself. And Alina Stokely told me uh, that it was her satanic cult group that went into the house that night. And it was her initiation into the group. And I said, what is this all about? And that was really the first I learned about Satanism. But Alina told me that <clears throat> to prove that she was in the house, that she'd attempted to ride the rocking horse in the child's bedroom, the spring was broken, she wouldn't have known about that otherwise. She told me that, uh, that there was a jewelry box. I asked her specifically, was there anything arrangement of the furniture, draw the diagrams of the house and so forth, she did that. I asked her about a jewelry box on the uh, master bedroom 
dresser. She said there was a jewelry box there. I had her describe it. And she described it. I went down, got a Sears and Roebuck catalog. I showed her the catalog. She picked out the box. It was identical with it. She talked uh, about uh, also uh, that, uh, that there was something unusual ha happened that night. She said that right in the middle of all this commotion and this fighting, that the phone rang. And I said, well, what happened? And she said, well, I answered the phone. And uh, there was a man asked for Dr. McDonald. And I said, well, then what happened after that? And she said, well, Dwight Smith, who was the person she identified as also being there, there were uh, some seven uh, individuals involved in the crime, said, hang up the GD phone. And so she hung up the phone. Well, later on, I heard, I found out through my investigative effort that the person who made that call was a fellow named James Fryer. And he was in the penitentiary in western North Carolina, out of Asheville, North Carolina. And I called the warden. I made arrangements to go out and interview him on a Saturday morning. Well, when I arrived out there that morning, can you guess what happened? He had escaped the night before. And uh, in de developing uh, additional information on the case, I learned that the, one of the early prosecutors, Jim Proctor, was the judge's ex-son-in-law. He was divorced from his wife, but still the judge was a grandfather to the children. And I learned that the police intelligence files on this group of Satanists that Alina described by name gave me descriptions of exactly where each one of them went in the house, what happened, step by step. Intelligence files disappeared out of the uh, Fayetteville Police Department files and also out of Waycross, Georgia, because one of them had been rest arrested down there. I learned subsequently that there were two black fibers on Colette's tongue in her mouth. There was a black fiber on the 32-inch bed slat, and there was a black fiber wool on her chest, black wool, okay? Determined it was black wool. The FBI had in their notes their handwritten notes that it was black wool and a question mark as to where it came from. When the report was filed, were typed up, the formal report was typed up and filed and furnished to the defense, that information was left out. Now, in conducting my investigation, I learned that the only black wool in the house that night was Helena Stokely's skirt. She had on a black wool skirt. I also learned that uh, as a result of my confession, and later on there were some other confessions, a girl named Kathy Perry confessed to the FBI, but she said that she was high on drugs, and there were two, there were two children, they were boys that were killed that night, so the FBI discounted it. There's another individual, uh, Greg Mitchell, who was one of the assailants named by uh, Helena Stokely, who confessed to the neighbors that he was involved in the murder. But to this day, to this very day, that man is still in jail, in spite of this overwhelming evidence that he's innocent. Now, to confirm and document that it was a satanic cult murder, there were several signs that were left behind. This is always usually the case. They always leave signs behind. There were unexplained bird feathers in the house. There was a headless doll. And the two-and-a-half-year-old child had shallow ice pick, ten shallow ice pick uh, wounds in her chest in the form of an S. I asked Helena, I said, Helena, what did that S stand for? And she said, Satanism. So this was a shock to me. The McDonald case, this man's in jail. I couldn't understand it. I went on national television, a number of national TV shows. I debated Freddie Kassab, the father-in-law, on CNN. And uh, also a psychiatrist was there. And I talked about this satanic uh, aspect. And I had people calling me from all over the country, telling me the same basic story, from the East Coast, the West Coast, North and South. 
And I had people that, what you'd call them multi-generation Satanists, that's somebody who was born into it, mother, father, grandfather, grandmother, were involved in Satanism. And uh, adult survivors, that's somebody that gets out, usually has to go into hiding to survive. I had these people call me from all over the country, tell me about the ceremonies and about the, uh, the uh, extent of the Satanic movement in this country today. So I started investigating it myself. I gave a number of lectures on it. I had some national exposure, of course. And the bottom line is it's very easily explained. And it fits into a pattern. And this goes back some 200 years. I'm going to use as a textbook tonight Pawns in the Game. It's a book that was written by William Guy Carr. He's a retired commander in the Canadian uh, Naval Force. And uh, he had heard about the conspiracy and wanted to delve into it himself. He wrote a very compact book about what's going on with the Illuminati and how this fits into uh, modern day plans, what's going on in the world today. So we're going to use that as a textbook for the first two hours. In the second two hours, uh, we'll have some case studies. So let's start out by uh, stating and by showing you, we'll start with this page in the prefix. And you see this, this uh, in, we'll start up here. In 1784, an act of God placed the Bavarian government in possession of evidence which proved the existence of the continuing Luciferian conspiracy. This explains the previous nine pages, goes into it in detail. We don't have time to do it completely. Conspiracy. Uh, Adam Weishoff, a Jesuit plain professor of canon law, defected from Christianity and embraced the Luciferian ideology while teaching at Ingolstadt University. In 1770, the money uh, lenders who had recently organized the House of Rothschild retained him to revise and modernize the old, age-old protocols designed to give the synagogue of Satan ultimate world domination so they can impose the Luciferian ide ideology upon the re what remains of the human race after the final social catechism by use of sat satanic despotism Weinshoff completed his task on May the 1st, 1776. It's a communist holiday, isn't it? May 1, 1776. The plan required the destruction of all existing governments and religions. This objective was to be reached by dividing the masses, whom he termed goyims, meaning the human cattle, into opposing camps in ever-increasing numbers on political, racial, social, economic, and other issues. The opposing sides were then to be armed and an incident provided which would cause them to fight and weaken themselves as they destroyed national governments and religious institutions. In 1776, Weishoff organized the Illuminati to put the plot into execution. The word Illuminati is derived from Lucifer and means holders of the light. Using the lie that his objective was to bring about a one-world government to enable men with proven mental ability to govern the world, he recruited about 2,000 followers. These included the most intelligent men in the field of arts and letters, education, the sciences, finance, and industry. He then established lodges of the Grand Orient to be their secret headquarters. Weishaupt's revised plan required his Illuminati to do the following things to help them accomplish their purpose. One, use monetary and sex bribery to obtain control of people already occupying positions in high places in the various levels of all governments 
and other fields of human endeavor. Once an influential person had fallen for the lies, deceits, and temptations of the Illuminati, they were to be held in bondage by application of political and other forms of blackmail and threats of financial ruin, public exposure, and physical harm, and even death to themselves and their loved ones. We're going to take these a point at a time. And then what I'm going to do, I'm going to show you what's going on in this country today. This is a recent headline, not too recent, 1989, June the 3rd, 30th, 1989. Power brokers serve drugs, sex at parties, bug for blackmail. Here's another headline. Homosexual prostitution probe and snarls the fishers of the Bush and Reagan administration. Top Japanese politician linked to Spence. Craig Spence was a CIA operative. He was exposed as a CIA operative. His job was to set up dignitaries, politicians, congressmen, etc., and uh, to blackmail them. Once he was exposed, of course, he didn't last too long. He lasted something like six months. Within six months, uh, he was, uh, I think he was suicided. Now, recently, it's sometimes referred to as Arkansas, by the way. Uh, not Spence, though. This was before uh, Mr. Bill Clinton was in the White House. But uh, in my experience as a private investigator, security consultant over the last 17 years, I've had a number of high-profile cases in addition to the Jeffrey McDonald case. And I'm happy to report I've, been, I've had a phenomenal uh, success record on it. It takes a lot of time, a lot of diligence, and the right contacts in order to be successful in this field. But in 1989, I was contacted by a gentleman by the name of Ed Weaver, a wonderful Christian man in Lincoln, Nebraska. And he had read about me in a book called The Ultimate Evil by Maury Terry. The Ultimate Evil was a story about the Son of Sam murders in New York, and uh, Terry, uh, Maury Terry wrote, wrote the book. He contacted me on the West Coast, asked me to help him do the research on it, et cetera, et cetera, which I did. Involved uh, on the West Coast, the murder of a producer named uh, Roy Radin. And uh, I'm happy to report that the people who were responsible for his contract. Uh, it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Murder or contract killing of Roy Raiden are in jail today. There's four of them serving uh, three, three li I mean, all four of them serving life sentences with no parole. And I'm also happy to report that I had a little bit uh, something to do with putting them in jail for the rest of their lives.
But as a result of uh, my name appearing in the book, The Ultimate Evil, uh, Ed called me and said, uh, you know, are you the same Ted Gunderson that went to Lincoln High School in Lincoln, Nebraska, and went to the University of Nebraska? And I said, I am. He said, well, I'm Ed Weaver, and I was your classmate, and of course I remembered him. Uh, and, uh, but he said, we have a real problem here in Nebraska. We have a case called the Franklin cover-up, and in this particular case, um, the FBI and the IRS raided the Franklin Credit Bureau, which was a credit bureau established in the minority neighborhood in order to furnish banking and financial opportunities to the minorities. People on the board of directors included people like Harold Anderson, uh, who was past publisher of the Omaha World Herald, other very prominent citizens. And as a result of the raid, there was publicity. Larry King, by the way, was the individual who was president of the savings and loan. Not Larry King, alive CNN, but Larry King, a, a black man, a fast-rising star in the Republican Party, had sung the national anthem in Texas at the Republican National Convention and New Orleans at the Re Republican National Convention. As a result of the publicity, there were 80 children in Omaha came forward and talked about being uh, exposed and uh, ritualistically and sexually uh, victims of this element, this, this group of people. These were some of the leading businessmen in Omaha. Uh, these kids named not only Harold Anderson, but they also named Bob Wadman, chief of police, as being involved in this ring. They named uh, Gene Mahoney, past uh, former vice squad with the Omaha, vice detective with the Omaha Vice Squad, Omaha, Nebraska. And he's now uh, head of the forestry service for the state, has a park named after him between Lincoln and Omaha. They named the, the uh, editor of the society page of the Omaha World Herald. They named the heir to the Brandeis fortune. I mean, these were top citizens, highly respected people in the community. And of these 80 children that came forward, four of them gave statements. Of the four who gave statements, two of them later recanted, probably under pressure. Two refused to recant, Alicia Owens and Paul Benassi. And uh, actually, what happened with Paul, they feel like they apparently discredited him because he had been convicted of child molestation. Alicia Owens claimed that she uh, had sex with Bob Wadman, chief of police, when she was 14 years old. She told the grand jury that. And as a result, uh, they tried her for perjury before the grand jury, and uh, she was uh, convicted. As far as I'm concerned, I attended the trial, uh, a day of the trial, and it was a kangaroo court. There's no question in my mind. But this was the situation, and uh, in discussing the matter, I did go back to Nebraska, of course, after talking to Ed. And I'm telling you right now about my experience there in talking to Paul and Alicia and so forth. But in talking to Paul, he gave me a number of signed statements. By the way, Gary Caradori, the investigator before me, died in an airplane crash coming out of Chicago. He had called the, uh, they had a, a Senate, state Senate committee that was organized for the purpose of checking into this situation, this uh, child uh, uh, sexual ring. And uh, he had called the senator, Lawrence Schmidt, from Chicago. He was sent back there on the lead. Called uh, Schmidt, Senator Schmidt, and said, I have the goods right now. They cannot get out of it. Uh, he uh, got on an airplane that night, and uh, it was, uh, the plane uh, crashed outside of Chicago, about an hour and a half out of Chicago. And, uh, and his briefcase is missing, and the back seat of the plane is missing. Uh, they claimed that... Uh, he had engine trouble and the plane disintegrated, but there was a farmer who saw a flash of fire and light and, uh, and he felt that it was very obvious to me and obvious to anybody else that there was probably a bomb in the plane. I can't prove it. This is uh, what his 
being spread and thought about at, at the present time and has been for some time. But anyway, Gary Caridori was had done a great job on the case. I was not replacing him in full because I couldn't work full time on it. I had a business in California. But uh, in talking to Paul Bonassi, he told me about the number of times when he and others were taken out of schools, private schools in Omaha, uh, driven by limousine to Sioux City, Iowa, and placed on private jets and flown to Washington, D.C. for sex orgy parties with congressmen and senators. Paul told me and has drawn for me the living quarters of the White House. People are, the public's not allowed in the living quarters of the White House. There's no question in my mind Paul is telling the truth. But in addition to this, uh, he talked about an organized child kidnapping ring, which I will discuss later on in the lecture. We'll discuss that in the second half, by the way. But this is your documentation. This is what I'm saying. And this, and by the way, Paul knew Craig Spence, knew him very closely, and had worked with Craig in setting some of these politicians up. So then we come back to the second point. And number two. Uh, starts here. Illuminati on the faculties uh, uh, of colleges and universities were to recommend students possessing exceptional mental ability belonging to well-bred families with international learnings for special training in internationalism. This training was to be provided by granting scholarships to those selected. They were to be educated and indoctrinated into accepting the idea that only one world government can put an end to recurring wars and tribulations. They were to be at first persuaded and then convinced that men of special ability and brains had the right to rule those less gifted because the goyim, that's us, folks, masses of the people don't know what is best for them physically, mentally, and spiritually. Today, three such schools are located in Scotland, Germany, Greece, and so forth. So. I think you're probably aware of the extent of recruitment that the government does on college campuses. That doesn't, of course, uh, mean that, uh, that that necessarily applies here in every instance. But I have known of the extensive recruiting efforts by the CIA on college campuses. And the CIA, believe it, no question about it, there's an element of the CIA that's tied into this. And I'll document that as I go along later on. The next uh, point, these are the goals now that are being set forth by the newly organized Illuminati. Influential people trapped into coming under the control of the Illuminati. And students who had been specially educated and trained were to be used as agent tour and placed behind the scenes of all governments as experts and specialists. So they could advise the top executives to adopt policies which would, in the long run, serve the secret plans of the one-worlders and bring about the ultimate destruction of the governments and religions they were elected or appointed to serve. This happened in Yalta, you remember Yalta? FDR went over, we gave away the world to them. This has happened time and time again. The next point I find very interesting, and uh, how true it is today. The Illuminati were to obtain control of the press and all other agencies which distribute information to the public. News and information was to be slanted so the Goyams would come to believe that a one-world government is the only solution to our many and varied problems. True today, isn't it? And again, I'm going to deal with that a little later on in this first uh, two hours of the lecture.
Going down here, a German author named Zwack put Weisop's revised vision of the old age conspiracy into book form and named it Ein Original Scriptum. My German isn't too good, even though I have a little bit of German in me. In 1784, a copy of this document was sent to the luminous Weisop and delegated to foment the French Revolution. You mean the Illuminati was responsible for the French Revolution? Yes, absolutely. The courier was struck dead by lightning as he rode through Radisson, Radisbon on his way from Frankfurt to Paris. What about a little divine intervention there, huh? The police found the subversive documents on his body and turned them over to the proper government authorities. After careful study of the plot, the Bavarian government ordered the police to raid Weisop's newly organized lodges of the Grand Orient and the homes of some of the most influential associates, including the castle of Baron Bassen Sonderdorf. Additional evidence thus obtained convinced the authorities that documents were a genuine copy of a conspiracy by which the synagogue of Satan had controlled the Illuminati at the top, planned to use wars and revolutions to bring about the establishment of one kind or another of a one-world government, the powers of which they intended to usurp as soon as it was established. In 1785, the Bavarian government outlawed the, the Illuminati and closed the lodges of the Grand Orient. In 1786, they published the details of the conspiracy. I find that very interesting. And I think that uh, we can now go on to some more specific goals, as mentioned. This uh, appears uh, also in this uh, uh, Pawns in the Game. In 1773, when Meyer Rothschild was only 30 years of age, he invited 12 other wealthy and influential men to meet him in Frankfurt. His purpose was to convince them that if they agreed to pool their resources, they could then finance and control the world revolutionary movement and use it as their manual of action to win ultimate control of the wealth, natural resources, and manpower of the world. After the general introduction to build up an enthusiastic reception for the plot, uh, he was about to unfold, Rothschild turned to a manuscript and proceeded to read a carefully prepared plan of action. The following is what I have, this is the author, what I have been assured is a condensed version of the plot by which the conspirators hoped to obtain ultimate undisputed control of the wealth, natural resources, and manpower of the entire world. One, the speaker started to unfold the plot by saying that because the majority of men are inclined to evil rather than to good, the best results in governing them could be obtained by using violence and terrorism and not by academic discussions. The speaker reasoned that in the beginning, human society had been subject to brutal and blind force, which was afterwards changed to law. He argued that law was which was afterwards, uh, he argued the law was force only to disguise. He reasoned it was logical to conclude that by the laws of the nature, rights lies in force. Next point. He next asserted that political freedom is an idea and not a fact. He stated that in order to usurp political power, all that was necessary was to preach liberalism so that the electorate, for the sake of an idea, would yield some of their power and prerogatives which the plotters could then together, gather together into their own hands. Do we have a little bit of liberalism in this country today? Of course. Three, the speaker asserted that the power of gold had usurped 
the power of liberal rulers even then, in 1773, he reminded his audience that there had been a time when faith had ruled, but stated that once freedom had been some substituted for faith, the people did not know how to use it in moderation. He argued that because of this fact, it was logical to assume that they could use the idea of freedom to bring about class wars. He pointed out that it was immaterial to the success of his plan whether the established governments were destroyed by internal or external forces because the victor had of necessity to seek the aid of capital which is entirely in our hands. Number four, he argued that the use of any and all means to reach their final goal was justified on the grounds that the ruler who governed by the moral code was not a skilled politician because he left himself vulnerable and is in unsuitable position to his throne. He said, those who wish to rule must have recourse to cunning and to make believe because great national qualities like frankness and honesty are vices in politics. I think that kind of applies to Washington, D.C. right today. Number five, he asserted, our right lies in force. The word right is an abstract thought and proves nothing. I find a new right to attack by the right of the strong and to scatter to the winds all existing forces of order and regulations to reconstruct all existing institutions. And to become the sovereign lord of all those who left for us the rights to their powers by laying them down voluntarily in their liberalism. Six, he then admonished his listeners with these words, the power of our resources must remain invisible until the very moment when it has gained such strength that no cunning or force can undermine it. He warned them that any de uh, deviation from the line of the strategy plan he was making known to them would risk bringing the knot the labors of the century. The powers of our resources must remain invisible. What's going on in America today? Their it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But their plan, their conspiracy remains invisible. Nobody in a position of authority seems to be worried about it. It's only us who are Goyans that are concerned about it, right? The mass of the people. We do have an opportunity, fortunately, through the alternate press to learn about these things and through lectures such as we have here today. Number seven, he next advocated the use of mob psychology to obtain control of the masses. He reasoned that the might of the mob is blind, senseless, and unreasoning, and ever at the mercy of suggestion from any side. He stated only a, a despotic 
a ruler can rule the mob efficiently because without absolute despotism, there can be no existence for civilization, which uh, was carried out not by the masses, but by their guide, whosoever that person might be. He warned, the moment the mob seizes freedom in their hands, it quickly turns to anarchy. Number eight, he next advocated that the use of alcohol, liquor, drugs, moral corruption, and all forms of vice be used systematically by their agenturs to corrupt the morals of the youth in the nation. He recommended that the special agenturs should be trained as tutors, lackeys, governesses, clerks, and by, uh, other, uh, by our women in the places of dissipation frequented by the Goyans. He added, in the number of these last, I count also the so-called society ladies who become voluntary followers of the others in corruption and luxury. We must not stop at bribery, deceit, and treachery when they should serve towards the attainment of our ends. Well, what about the youth today? What about drugs today? What about uh, corruption, corruption of the morals of our youth? The CIA is the biggest drug dealer in America, has been for years, starting back in the 1960s, okay? Going on, uh, by the way, speaking of drugs, let me just mention, there's a recent article in Reader's Digest, in fact, it was January 1996, and here's what it says. In 1993, some six tons of heroin, 200 tons of cocaine, and 3,900 tons of marijuana crossed the Mexican border into the United States. Now, this is just what's crossed the Mexican border. This doesn't count what came into Mena, Arkansas. The Mena, Arkansas drug operation was $100 million a month operation for 10 years when, 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 when Clinton was governor there. By the way, Larry Nichols, who was marketing director of the Arkansas Development Finance Authority, which was used as the device for laundering the drug money and for making the loans, told Bill Clinton, according to Larry Nichols, that we had this big drug operation going, and Clinton told him, hey, that's a federal problem. Now that he's president, I guess maybe it's a state problem. Uh, but for those of you who are not familiar with the MENA, Arkansas situation, the Arkansas Development Finance Authority was established uh, in order to provide money, loans to schools, churches, and students and instead it was used to launder money from the MENA drug operation and in that particular operation they were they were uh, flying arms out and drugs in and Bill Clinton himself personally signed off on each loan. The loans were not repaid in many instances. In some instances they didn't even make one payment. And Don Tyson, according to Clinton Chronicles, number two, uh, himself took a ten million dollar loan from there and never paid it back. So, so we're talking about just the Mexican border here. We're not talking about what was flown in and out of this country. We're not talking about what's coming over from the Canadian border now. And my confidential sources tell me that there's extensive drug operations coming in from Canada. Now, stay, stop and think about this. There's an extensive amount of corruption in the state of Nebraska. There's no question about it. My sources in Montana tell me that there's an extensive amount of drugs and corruption with officials in that state, it makes a lot of sense and much it's much easier to corrupt a state with a few small uh, population rather than with a large population like New York and California. 
So I think that's what we're looking at, and that would also include, of course, uh, Arkansas. Now, according to this, these statistics are uh, estimates by the White House Office of the National Drug Control Policy. Now, bear in mind, there's uh, 1993, six tons of heroin, 200 tons of cocaine, and 3,900 tons of marijuana. I've already said that once. Now, yet that year, customs confiscated from trucks, tankers, and vans less than nine tons of marijuana, four tons of cocaine, and no heroin. So we're talking about corruption? Yes. Corruption at the highest level. Now, I have some sources, some confidential sources, who furnish me information from time to time. And uh, there's code words for some of these various operations. The code word that I'm going to tell you about right now, and this is in my source's own handwriting. He doesn't read, he doesn't write too well, so I may make some mistakes. Uh, the Black Rose is a code word for this. It's a clandestine group of U.S. government operatives, primarily the CIA, which has for many years run illegal drugs and arms operations in both Southeast Asia via the Golden Triangle and the Middle East via the Golden Crescent, funded by the British socialist-based Russell, Russell Trust drug cartel. The Black Rose's current chairman and co-founder is an individual known as the White Rose, or GHWB, a known bisexual pedophile and CFR, Council on Foreign Relations Conspirator. Um, this man, as a top member of the Skull and Bone Society, developed the heroin ring which, uh, while servicing an amb as ambassador along with his CIA activities. The Black Rose also runs cocaine through Panama from, the, from Colombia to the offshore oil rigs in the Gulf of Mexico. That's from a, directly from a government agent. Now, we mentioned uh, Vietnam. Uh, in the uh, McDonald case that I described to you earlier, the motive uh, for the cover-up, and I waited until now to tell you about this, Helena Stokely told me that the reason for the cover-up was because her satanic cult drug group were bringing drugs in from the base that had been flown in plastic bags in the body cavities of the dead GIs from Vietnam in Air Force planes, CIA planes. They were bringing the drugs off the base and distributing them up and down the East Coast. And they went in on their own, wiped out the McDonald family without the knowledge of the higher-ups in the drug operation, which included some top Army personnel, some police officers, two attorneys in Fayetteville, and uh, the higher-ups were afraid that if there was an investigation of Alina Stokely's satanic cult group, it could expose the whole operation. You want documentation on the drugs being flown in in plastic uh, bags in the body cavities of the, of the dead GIs? Look at Time Magazine, January 1, 1973. I mentioned uh, Amina, Arkansas, drugs. Uh, by the way, there's been so much heat placed on Amina, Arkansas, that they shifted their operation for this drug uh, activity to Biloxi, Mississippi. Um, I mentioned uh, the uh, laundering of money on the Mena, Arkansas case. They were laundering their money through the Arkansas Development Finance Authority into a BCCI Bank in Atlanta, Georgia, and one in Florida. And they also laundered their money in uh, Rostenkowski's Bank in uh, Chicago. Beg your pardon? I, that's right. I'm sorry. That's right. We're not supposed to have questions, are we? Okay. Um, now, let's talk about uh, the next point here, item number nine. 
Turning to politics, he claimed that they had the right to seize property by any means and without hesitation, if by doing so they secured submission and sovereignty. He pronounced, our state marching along the path of peaceful conquest has the right to replace the horrors of war by less noticeable and more satisfactory sentences of death necessary to maintain the terror, which tends to produce blind submission. I gave a speech just a few nights ago for the Prophecy Club in uh, Wichita, two nights ago as a matter of fact, and uh, a farmer came up afterwards, told me about his problem, and I'm sure that some of you here may have the same problem. He was granted some loans by the bank, and he was making his payments. He had a little problem uh, for a short period of time, but he was able, he, he felt like he could catch up on it, and he recalled the whole note. Now he's in the process of losing his farm. It's been in the family for five generations. This is tragic, and this is happening to farmer after farmer after farmer. I don't know if those of you who are familiar with the Gordon Call case out of North Dakota, IRS came in. They're going to take his land away from him, his farm away from him. He had a shootout with the U.S. Marshals on the highway. His son, uh, Yori, was uh, shot and is presently serving life in the penitentiary right now. I'm glad to report that Yori's uh, attorney is John DeCamp from Lincoln, Nebraska, who's also worked with the Nebraska Franklin cover-up case. John's a wonderful man and a great attorney. And uh, I've been working with John, you know, as I mentioned, since the late 1980s. But Gordon Call uh, had to go into hiding in Arkansas, and he was ultimately uh, murdered by the marshals. And uh, the sheriff uh, who went in with the marshals, uh, according to information I have, made the statement after they shot him, oh, you shot the wrong man, and then the sheriff ended up uh, dead. I can't say that somebody shot him or didn't shoot him, but I know he ended up dead. The house ended up being burned down. Those of you who are familiar with Dianne Feinstein, uh, the senator from California, she's introduced a bill about uh, taking the national parks and uh, taking the state land and uh, county land and turning it over to the federal government. Uh, there is a an organization in the government itself known as the International Biosphere Reserves. The New World Order, this is again from one of my sources, uh, for section of land, the New World Order term for section of land that has been turned over to the World Conservation Bank, that's the World WCB, in lieu of payments of the debt of the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank. It's called the International Biosphere Reserves. In the U.S., largely unknown by most Americans, many beautiful national parks and wilderness areas are quietly being turned over to the world bankers, the Rothschilds, Rockefeller cartel. As payment on the national debt, areas such as the Smoky Mountain National Park, these are then cleared of any citizens and zealously patrolled by the U.S. Forestry Service. This is going on today. And as a matter of fact, of the 98 uh, federal parks in this country, the United Nations has control of 47 of them. There is a, an agency, a little-known agency in the Treasury Department. It's called the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. It's a little-known agency whose subversive mission is to monitor every dime you earn, track every dollar you spend, and identify all your assets and property for later confiscation. Let's go on to number 10. Dealing with the use of the slogans, he said, in ancient times we were the first to put the words liberty, equality, 
and fraternity into the mouths of the masses, words repeated to this day by stupid uh, poll parrots, words which the would-be wise men of the Goyams could make nothing of in their abstractness and did not note the contradiction of their meaning and interrelation. He claimed the words brought under their, their directions and control legions who bore out our banners with enthusiasm. He reasoned that there is no place in nature for equality, liberty, or fraternity. He said on the ruins of the natural and ge genealogical uh, aristocracy of the Goyams, we have set up the uh, aristocracy of money. Qualification for this aristocracy is wealth, which is dependent upon us. Well, let's look at uh, wealth. Where's the wealth of this country today? Federal Reserve, right? And uh, where does the money for the collected from the IRS go? Goes to the Federal Reserve. Doesn't go toward paying the national debt. And uh, from the Federal Reserve System, uh, which is a private stock, uh, private held stock corporation, it goes into the World Bank. And the, the banks are in uh, London, Switzerland, Rome, Paris, and so forth. These are the people that run the world. These are the Illuminati. Very simple. The most recent information on money, and this has been documented, is that there's $1 billion per day in $100 bills that's being shipped out of Kennedy Airport by Delta Airlines to Russia. $1 billion per day in $100 bills, five days a week. And uh, for those of you who are not too familiar with the Federal Reserve System, I'm sure some of you do know this. I know most of you probably do. This is a well-educated group, obviously. The Federal Reserve asks the U.S. Treasury to print up $100 bills. The US it is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Treasury charges the Federal Reserve 2.3 cents per bill. And then the Federal Reserve takes that money that they have that came right out of the sky, right from the Treasury Department, and they loan it out. That plus principal and interest. Let's go on now to number 11. He then expounded his theories regarding war. In 1773, he set down a principle which the government of Britain and the United States publicly announced as their joint policy in 1939. Don't you find that interesting? Set down policy. He set down a principle that was announced by our government and the British in 1939. I find that fascinating. He said, it should be the policy of those present to foment wars, but to direct the peace conference so that neither of the combatants obtain territorial gains 
He said the war should be directed so that the nations engaged on both sides should be placed further in our debt and in the power of our agent tours. Yalta again, we gave away. We basically won. What did they do to Patton? You remember what they did to Patton? He wanted to keep right on going. He was told by the president, stop. By the way, are you aware of the fact that we left, our government left, between 35 and 50,000 GIs in Russia after World War II? I'm sure you're aware of the MIA POW issue in, the, in the Vietnam, okay? General Patton wanted to go after them. It was shortly after he said he was going to go into Russia and rescue our boys that he died in an automobile accident. Uh, well, at least he wasn't Arkansas. Okay, next. Uh, number 12. He then dealt with administration. He told those present that they must use their wealth to have candidates chosen for public office who would be uh, servile and obedient to our command so they may readily be used as pawns in our game by learned and ingenious men we will appoint to operate behind the scenes of government as official advisors. He added, the men we appoint as advisors will have been bred, reared, and trained from childhood in accordance with our ideas to rule the affairs of the whole world. I find this very interesting. They will have been bred, reared, and trained from childhood in accordance with our ideas to rule the affairs of the whole world. Now, I have, in my experience in developing information about satanic movement in this country, I've talked to a lot of people. An example of this, number 12, being born bred. Uh, I was contacted by a lady attorney in New York City. She was a multi-generation Satanist. You remember I told you that's somebody that's been raised, born into the family. Grandfather, grandmother, mother, father, etc. She told me that she was raised by her family. She, was, she knew well in advance that she was going to be an attorney. And she was sent to law school. And her specialty was immigration laws. And she would go to Europe and bring children into this country that she didn't know, land at Kennedy Airport in New York City, turn these children over, usually one child at a time, and, and she was a specialist on immigration, so she knew what to do in Europe in order to get their hands on this child, bring the child and turn it over to a man, two men, in Kennedy Airport she'd never met before and walk away. She was supposedly bringing the child in for adoption. I've seen case after case of history where people were specifically assigned and born and reared and trained for assignments in this area. Have you ever heard of presidential models? Presidential models are sex slaves for some of the top people in the, in the government. There's a woman named Kathy O'Brien who's recently written a book on this. I happen to know of another lady who was a presidential model. And what they do, and these, these ladies were born for that purpose. In fact, one of them was born on Eisenhower's inauguration. And they're trained, mind control, MKUltra, Project Monarch, these are CIA mind control programs. They're trained specifically for an assignment. In this particular assignment, she told me, the one girl, the one lady told me, that she was molested on a regular basis by her father, and he still loved her, however. And when she was 16, he came in, and he was crying in her bedroom. He said, my dear, I've got to give you up. And he, he passed her on to some uh, training, per, uh, for uh, training with uh, a group of men. 
She later ended up with some of the top uh, politicians in the country, presidents. I'm talking about presidents. This has been confirmed by two individuals I've talked to, Kathy O'Brien and another one. The other one wishes to remain anonymous. And I understand there are three other uh, ladies who fall in this category. They've all gotten out. And it's just like the children that they use for the uh, that they use for victims of pedophile. When they get sold, they let them out, push them out into the street. Okay, item number uh, 13. He dealt with propaganda, explained how their combined wealth could control all outlets of public information while they remained in the shade and clear of blame, regardless of what the repercussions might be due to the publish, uh, publication of uh, libel, slander, or untruths. The speaker said, thanks to the press, we've got gold in our hands, notwithstanding the fact that we had to gather it out of the oceans of blood and tears. But it has paid us even though we have sacrificed many of our own people. Each victim on our side is worth a thousand goyims. Well, don't you find that interesting? We're talking about propaganda. We're talking about the press, outlets of public information. I don't know how many of you are aware, but I recently ran for president of the United States. And in November, late November, I was sitting in my living room. I don't sit very often. I usually am working. But I was watching the politicians. And I said to myself, these people have missed the point. They either are totally ignorant or they don't know what they're talking about. But these people, these men are running for president of the United States. They haven't really addressed the real issues. The real issues are what we're talking about here today. These are the issues. Not, I'm going to go back to Washington, D.C. and make this all a bed of roses. And as far as I'm concerned, there's not a dime worth of difference between the Democrats or the Republicans. They've both been, they've both been compromised. <clears throat> and uh, these kids that were taken back to Washington, D.C., they weren't taken back just for Democrats. And they weren't taken back just for Republicans. There were Republicans and Democrats there. But anyway, I got mad. I had $164.31 in the bank, and I said, I'm going to run for president of the United States. <laughs> and uh, I did. I did. I thought about it, and I said, well, should I do I've been a Republican all my life. Should I run as a Republican, or maybe I should go over and register Democrat for the first time in my whole life and run against the real problem, Bill Clinton? So I did. I registered Democrat, and I was, you know, there's some good Democrats, some good conservative Democrats, I'm sure. Someplace, I don't know where they are, but they're someplace. <laughs> but anyway, uh, and uh, then I formed a, 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 a group, a uh, committee to elect Ted Gunderson, and we did raise a few dollars. I the first uh, check I received was for $1,000, and I used that $1,000 to register in New Hampshire. And I got on the ballot in New Hampshire, and then I was able to raise another $2,500, and I was able to get on the ballot in Texas. And then I raised another $500, and I sent it to Colorado, and uh, with my $500, I met the deadline, filled out the application, and uh, I re received a response back about 10 days later, two weeks later, I'm sorry, you're not a viable candidate, and they kept my $500. I tried to get on the ballot in Oregon and uh, Tennessee. They said, you're not a viable candidate, forget it. Anyway, to make a long story short, I had, in addition to my experiences dealing with the media, this deals with number uh, 13, uh, dealing with the media as an FBI agent, I had 
have, I dealt with them as a politician. I mean, really, let's face it, I'm not really a politician, right? But it was fun. And uh, I recall that I was campaigning in Texas. I did manage to get to Texas. I didn't manage to get to New Hampshire. My money was real short. But uh, a man came in. He liked my platform, strictly downsize the federal government, do away with the IRS, uh, go back to the 17th Amendment, you know, states' rights, and so forth. The man came in. He said, look, he said, I'd like to support you. And I said, fine. You know, I need all the support I can get. He said, no, financially. I said, fine, but you don't give me $1,000 unless you put a political action committee together and you give me 5000 He said, no. He says, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll go on a joint venture, and I'll, uh, I'll invest some money, and you can come in and be a business partner with me. I said, that's great. So I thought I was going to have some money, and uh, so I called on uh, February the 9th. I called uh, a television station in uh, New Hampshire. I called uh, WMUR, ABC TV, Manchester, New Hampshire. And I said, look, I'm Ted Gunderson. I'm a presidential candidate, and I had a committee to elect, and I registered with the Federal Election Commission. And uh, I want to run Clinton Chronicles this Sunday night, or a week from Sunday night. <laughs> and uh, what will two hours prime time cost me? Now, I thought I was going to, I thought I was going to have the money. Because this man said, well, I'll bring $750,000 in. I'm going to bring it in from overseas. And I thought he was legit. As it is, I think he was a government plant, but that's beside the point. But anyway, I thought I was going to have the money. So, uh, you know, bear in mind, as a politician, the only th way they can turn me down as a candidate, a viable candidate, is if there's sex or drugs involved in the, uh, in the uh, video or the show. Well, there's drugs involved, certainly, and sex involved, but it's not by me, right? I mean, it's a documentary. So uh, they said $20,000. And I talked to a woman named uh, Julie Campesino. Call back Monday. Hi, Julie, this is Ted. Yes, I remember. Oh, by the way, uh, I checked, and I was wrong on the price for two hours of prime time. It's $120,000. So it went up $100,000. I was scheduled in New Hampshire to be on a forum, and uh, I was uh, canceled. And I had, I had a feeling I was supposed to be on a forum on Friday morning. Before I got on the plane, I thought, I better call. I called, and they said, well, you're not, you know, you were scheduled, but you're, you're not going to be on there. I had an opportunity to uh, talk at uh, Branch Davidian Rally on the State Capitol Building in Texas, Austin, Texas, on a Saturday morning. And I was the last speaker. There were four speakers. And... Uh, they were filming all three of them before I got up, and when I got up to talk, the CBS closed down and walked away. Uh, so we're talking about the, the press, control of the press. Now, in New Hampshire, uh, when the final ballot was in, uh, by the way, I ended up 12th out of 21 candidates there, and in Texas I was able to come up with 15,501 votes, and half of those votes were from the Christian station, TV show that I did in Houston, Texas, and uh, so it shows you the power of television. But in New Hampshire, when the final uh, tally came in for the Democratic primary, the press reported that Bill Clinton had 94% of the votes and the rest of us had uh, 6%. Well, I went behind the scenes and I found out that what happened was Bill Clinton actually had 91%. 
and 3% of the voters submitted a blank ballot. That was never reported in the press. In Iowa, in Iowa, there was, in one instance, there was 13% of the votes were taken away from Buchanan. And uh, what happened was uh, they, uh, the precinct uh, uh, captains reported the information to the media before he gave it to the election, electorates. And uh, they reported it and put it out as the official news. By the way, uh, in the Nebraska case, this is a typical example of controlling the press. Yorkshire Television out of England came into Lincoln and Omaha and did a 10-month TV documentary of the case. They talked to Paul Benassi, Alicia Owens, and uh, by the way, the kids told me that there were victims. Young children were being transported from Omaha to Des Moines to Milwaukee to Madison back to uh, Minneapolis. They were being victimized by some of the leading men in all of these uh, various communities leading businessman. Uh, but Yorkshire Television came in. Uh, we couldn't, uh, John could not get an American uh, organization or, or corporation or American studio or film production company to do anything here, so he went to England. They worked for 10 months. They put together... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A TV documentary is called uh, Conspiracy in Silence. On May the 4th, 1994, it was to be aired. Two weeks before it was to be aired, on the Discovery Channel, Discovery Channel was purchased by Cox Television, and uh, the show was killed. Cox Television out of Atlanta, Georgia. One of the major stockholders in Cox Television, according to John DeCamp, is George Bush. I find that very interesting. Now, there is a, uh, there was an article recently in uh, the Las Vegas Review Journal. And since I happen to live in Las Vegas, I happen to have noticed this, but I've seen this on a number of other occasions. It's dated April 3, 1996. This article deals with the Freeman. The Freeman's beliefs are described as the headlines. Um, I got mad not too long ago when I heard uh, Brandy uh, Schweitzer, Leroy Schweitzer's daughter, uh, was claiming that her father was being tortured by the U.S. Marshal. I jumped on a plane and flew to Montana to find out for myself. I interviewed Brandy Schweitzer and Scott Schweitzer, and I interviewed another individual who saw Leroy Schweitzer, the head of the Freeman Group in Montana, the day that he was arraigned and he had a one and a half inch gash on his cheek, and I took statements from these people on camera. And uh, so I do have a little bit of first-hand knowledge. I've also interviewed a number of people who um, have attended the school. And in fact, uh, Jeremiah uh, Television is uh, doing a, a video on it. I'm helping them in that regard. I just want to read this to you. But after a week of being confined to the snow-covered ranch, watched by federal agents who have a direct telephone line to the ranch compound, the Freemen are showing signs of leaning more heavily on the racist Christian identity teachings 
that form the basis of their politics. It's very frightening, said Eric Ward, associate director of the Northwest Coalition Against Malicious Harassment. Sometimes I wonder who's being harassed, by the way. The Seattle-based human rights group is well known in the region for keeping track of neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and other fringe groups. They believe there's a world conspiracy that has signaled them out and that satanic powers will be turned against them, Ward said. It creates the idea of being crusaders or even martyrs for the cause. The Christian identity movement holds that white people from northern Europe are God's chosen, while Jews are the offspring of Satan and blacks are subhuman, quote, mud people, end quote. This theory may be the backbone of the Freeman's efforts to set up their own government. Notice it said maybe, maybe, right? Uh, set up their own government and claim America for, quote, true citizens. It's like a cult, Ward said. These are people who have isolated themselves from the rest of society. There's no moderating influence. They're feeding on one another's fears and paranoia. That becomes an explosive situation for those who have to deal with this group. I've asked everybody I've interviewed who's attended that school, I've asked them about this article, and they said, not true, not true. That's how the media, the news is slanted. Now, I'd like to read in conclusion with number 13. I'd like to read from an article that appeared in Operation Vampire Killer 2000. Some of you may have already seen this. And here's what it says. David Rockefeller, international billionaire, humanist, CFR, Council on Foreign Relations, Kingpin, founder of the Trilateral Commission, World Order Godfather, and in all probability the high school graduated, voted most likely to be hanged for treason. <laughs> I didn't say that. Voiced his praise of the control of the U.S. media for keeping their oath not to devote the globus plans to the public. Speaking to his fellow conspirators at a meeting of yet one more infamous world order group, the Bilderbergers, Mr. Rockefeller said, by the way, I have a book that's available. You talk about control of the media, control of the press. It's called Who's Who of the Elite. And um, if you're interested in this book, uh, I'll be glad to make it available to you. I'll just have to give you the information. My address will appear, by the way, on this video at the end. And if I can't come up with it, I'll make sure that the Prophecy Club uh, has it available to them if you want to get it from them. But this book is Who's Who of the Elite. This names the members of the trilateral, current members and past, past members, the Council on Foreign Relations, the uh, Committee of 300, the Bilderbergers, Skull and Bones, and then it breaks them down. It points out the number that are working in the TV media. It points out the number that are working in universities, there's a lot of them in the universities, folks. It points out the number that are working in the publishing business and the number that work in the print media. I don't have those figures with me, but it's amazing and astounding how many that there are. And that's your control of the media. Anyway, continuing, this is what uh, uh, Rockefeller, according to uh, Operation Vampire Killer 2000, uh, this is what Rockefeller told the Bilderbergers. We are grateful to the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine, and other great publications whose directors have attended our meetings and respected their promise of discretion for almost 40 years. He went on to explain, it would have been impossible for us to develop our plan for the world 
if we have been subject to the bright lights of publicity during those years. But the world is now more sophisticated and prepared to march, march towards a world government. The supernatural sovereignty of an intellectual elite and world bankers is surely preferable to the national audio determination practiced in past centuries. And then it goes on, that's the end of the quote. It is not reported if the attendees kissed his ring or anything else after their leader bestowed his blessing on those in attendance. Actually, we could ask Governor Clinton or Dan Quayle, both of whom were there, Bush and Clinton are Bilderbergers, internationalists, and their goals are exactly the same for America. Let us repeat. Clinton's, Bush's, Perot's plans for America are virtually identical. The Republican, the Democrats' goal for America are virtually identical. They both are taking our nation into global government. Globalist Mr. Dan Quayle was there in the June 1991 meeting being sized up as a possible Bilderberger U.S. presidential commander, uh, contender in 1996. The major media's job is to convince Americans that the Republicans and the, and the Democrats are on opposite sides and fighting each other. Interesting. Okay, number 14. He then explained the necessity of having their agent tour always come into the open and appear on the scene when conditions had reached their lowest ebb and the masses have been subjected by means of want and terror. He pointed out that when it was time to restore order, they should do it in a way, such a way that the victims would believe that they had been the prey of criminals and irresponsibles. He said, by executing the criminals and lunatics after they have carried out our preconceived reign of terror, we can make ourselves appear as the saviors of the oppressed and the champions of the workers. The speaker then added, we are interested in just the opposite, in the denunciation, the killing out of the Goyans. Um, I have received information, and I, 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 I want to be very cautious about this. I cannot document this. It's strictly intelligence, raw intelligence information. So I don't put it out as a fact. But if it's true, it's something to be concerned about. Uh, that <clears throat> weapons are being given to gangs in this country gangs that are distributing drugs, men on the street, and that these gangs are the ones that have been designated to shoot and eliminate police officers when the time comes. And then uh, the uh, army or the New World Order or the military, whoever's going to be taken over eventually, will come in and eliminate the gangs. I ha also have information that the biggest concern of the New World Order it's not the militia. That's all a facade. I'm afraid they could eliminate the militia as it stands today uh, without too much difficulty, although there will be some people that will be difficult to locate and seek out. But the biggest concern they have is the veterans who have come back from the various services, particularly the Navy SEALs and the Special Forces. And I have been told, and I think this is accurate information, I don't want to put it out as a fact, per se, because I have not seen paper on it, and I usually like to say this is so because I've seen the documentation. But I, I, I'm a, I've been told that these are the men that they're concerned about, the New World Order is concerned about. These are the men uh, who have uh, already had others assigned for assassination. In other words, these are the ones that will be the first to be assassinated when the New World Order 
tries to take over. Okay, uh, next. He next explained how industrial depressions and financial panics could be brought about and used to serve their purpose, saying enforced unemployment and hunger imposed on the masses because of the power we have to create Sabbath shortages of food will create the right of capital to rule more surely than it was given uh, to the real uh, aristocracy and by the legal authority of kings. He claimed that by having their agent tour control the mob and the mob could then be used to wipe out all who dare to stand in their way. Number 15, financial panic, right? Food shortage. <clears throat> what about the savings and loan? You remember the savings and loan? The deregulated savings and loan? Millions of people lost their money, their life's savings. Right up here in Lincoln, Nebraska, Commonwealth, savings and loan was uh, written up and on 60 Minutes over that. Uh, there's organizations that advocate right today the reduction of the world population. They're actively uh, advocating that. Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett, the richest man in America, on and off with another gentleman, depending on who, how much stock they bought the day before, uh, and has been identified uh, by the kids in the Nebraska case as being present at some of the uh, meetings that were held. Uh, Warren Buffett is very active in this uh, organization to reduce the world population. Uh, it's been alleged that uh, the AIDS epidemic was actually uh, started by the government. And then we have, we have more recently this, the HARP program. For those of you who do not have this book, it is available through the Prophecy Club. Angels don't play this harp. Advances in Tesla's technology. The harp program. U.S. government has a new ground-based Star Wars weapon, which is being tested in the remote bush country of Alaska. This new system manipulates the environment in a way which can disrupt human mental processes, jam all global communication systems, change weather patterns over large areas, that's happening right today, interfere with wildlife migration patterns, negatively affect your health, unnaturally impact the Earth's upper atmosphere. The uh, U.S. military calls its Zapper Harp High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program but this skybuster is not about the northern lights. This device will turn on lights never intended to be artificially manipulated. It's all explained in this book. It's available, I think, back here today. Looking at uh, the Gulf War illness, the British troops and the American troops were uh, vaccinated, 440,000 of them. They were the ones that became ill, not the other troops who were not vaccinated. Looking at the food shortage, people said, though, there's, there's no food shortage. I have an article here, uh, June 12, 1995, Spotlight Magazine. During the last 18 months, the government has been storing hundreds of tons of grain and other foodstuffs in some 50 secret underground facilities around the country. There are certain grain shortages areas that are empty on a regular basis to the extent that there's hardly any grain available for the general public. Look at it. Uh, let's go on to the next item. Oops. 
I'm not doing so well, am I? Oops, let's see. Okay, um, we talked about financial grain, uh, uh, panics and so forth, depression, financial problems. Um, the infiltration into uh, continental Freemasonry was next discussed extensively. The speaker stated that their purpose would be to take advantage of the facilities and secrecy Freemasonry had to offer. He pointed out that... Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. They could organize their own Grand Orient lodges within blue masonry in order to carry on their subversive activities and hide the true nature of their work under the cloak of philanthropy. He stated that, in all, that all members initiated into their Grand Orient lodges should be used uh, to politicize purposes and for spreading their uh, atheistic, materialistic ideology amongst the Goyans. He ended this phase of the discussion with the words, when the hour strikes for our sovereign Lord of all the world to be crowned, these same hands will sweep away everything that might stand in their way. Number 17, he next expounded the value of systematic deception, pointing out that their agentur should be trained in the use of high-sounding phrases and the use of popular slogans. They should make the masses the most lavish of promises. He observed, the opposite of what has been promised can always be done afterwards, that is, if no consequences. That is, of no consequences. He reasoned that by using such words as freedom and liberty, the Goyams could be stirred up to such a pitch and patriotic fever that they could be made to fight even against the laws of God and nature. He added, and for this reason, after we obtain control of the very name of God, we'll be erased from the lexicon of life. He then pointed, he then detailed the plans for revolutionary war, the art of street fighting, and outlined the pattern of the reign of terror which he insisted must accompany every revolutionary effort because it is the most economical way to bring the population to a speedy subjection. Well, we have most recently here Janet Reno, among other things, once a national hit team, February 27, 1995. You find it interesting that she is talking about using uh, U.S. military units as well as personnel from all the federal agencies the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearm, Drug Enforcement Agencies, and um, I'm sure the FBI, yes, the FBI. And in fact, the, uh, under the proposed new act, the Rapid Deployment Strike Force 
would be commanded by Deputy Assistant Director of the FBI and would be staffed by not only FBI agents, but through the transfer of personnel from their elites and entities into the Department of Justice or any other federal agency. So, we have, uh, we have a, there a direct uh, contradiction and violation of the posse comitatus. I might mention that it's been documented that uh, the uh, military and civilian law enforcement agencies, federal agencies, uh, have had uh, a series of joint uh, training sessions in Michigan and in Arizona in house-to-house -house training, house-to-house uh, -house, uh, training of uh, going in and searching the houses and taking over uh, a facility. Well, let's see, what was that last question? That was number 18. Number 19. Uh, diplomacy was next discussed. After all wars, secret diplomacy must be insisted upon in order that our agent tour, masquerading as political, financial, economic advisors, can carry out our mandates without fear of exposing who are the secret power behind the national and international affairs. The speakers then told those present that by secret diplomacy they must obtain such control that the nation cannot come to an even, to even an inconceivably private uh, agreement without our secret agents having on hand, being on hand. Number 20, the ultimate world government is the goal. To reach this goal, the speaker told them, it will be necessary to establish huge monopolies, reservoirs of such colossal riches that even the largest fortunes of the Goyams will depend on us to such an extent that they will go to the bottom together with the credit of their government on the day after the great political smash. The speaker then uh, added, you gentlemen here present who are economists just strike an estimate of the significance of this combination. Well, I think you may recall, since you are a well-educated group, uh, about the meeting in San Francisco, September 27th, to October 1st, global plans for global civilization, uh, Gorbachev Bush led the charge. It was chaired by Ted Turner. Margaret Thatcher was also there. Margaret Thatcher was the one person that said, no, I want to maintain sovereignty for Great Britain, for England. And she walked out on it. What about our people? Don't you think we deserve sovereignty? Of course we do. And uh, now in order to take over the world, or take over the country, you have to have certain uh, situations which are in existence and certain commands and certain mandates and certain, a certain degree of power. And this is it right here. These are presently, presently in order right now. Executive orders now in effect. Check them one against the Communist Manifesto. We'll turn over to the Communist Manifesto next. Now let me explain. Executive orders this is unconstitutional, this whole thing right here. Because executive orders were designed to give directives to departmental heads within the government. In other words, the president can tell the director of the FBI, do this. He can tell the Department of Justice, uh, Attorney General, do this. The Postmaster General, do this. Okay? Executive Order 10995 takes over all communications. Executive Order 10997 takes over all electric power, petroleum, gas, fuel, and minerals. Executive Order 10998 takes over all food resources and farms. 
Executive Order 10999 takes over all means of transportation, controls highways and seaports. Executive Order 11000 drafts all citizens into workforces under government supervision, slave laborers. Sounds like Nazi Germany to me. Executive Order 11001 takes over all health, welfare, and educational functions. We already have, uh, uh, out, what's the United Nations uh, outcome? Uh, education. And uh, this is in many of our schools today, so they've already started in the educational functions. Executive Order 11002 empowers the Post Office General to register all citizens nationwide. They're probably already doing that through credit cards and Social Security Administration. I'd say that's probably already in effect. Executive Order 11003 takes over all airports and aircraft. Executive Order 11004 takes over housing and finance authorities and housing designated as unsafe, establishes new locations for populations, builds new housing with public funds. Executive Order 11005 takes over railroads, inland waterways, and public storage facilities. Don't you find public storage facilities kind of a strange? And that's strange that they would say that. But I can certainly understand why, because they want to go after the guns, they want to go after the food. There is uh, a new new legislation. I, I heard it's been passed, but at least I can say without any question it's been proposed, that would limit the, uh, the time limit that you have food on your shelf in your home. Yes. By the way, going back to uh, HARP, I forgot to mention one of the devices on HARP, that's the electronic uh, high frequency in Alaska that we mentioned a few minutes ago. Any car that's been built the last four years has a computer chip in it. And HARP can freeze that car in place once they turn it on. They have the capability of doing that. In New Jersey, they recently passed a law that placed very high restrictions on the uh, exhaust emission of automobiles and it's been stated and I have the, the records of this someplace I don't have it with me here today that most of the automobiles that are 10 years old and older will not be able to pass the emission test in New Jersey and um, of course that would uh, not include the automobiles that have been built in the last four years um, Executive Order 11051 designates the responsibilities of the Office of Emergency Planning, giving authorization to put the above orders into effect in times of increased international tension or economic crisis, anytime they want to do it, in other words. Then comes the big one, Executive Order 11490. All of the above orders are immediately activated. President John Kennedy at Columbia University in 1963 said it perfectly. The high office of the president has been used to foment a plot to destroy America's freedom. And before I leave this office, I must inform the citizens of their plight. Ten days later, he was dead. Communist Manifesto. The Communist Manifesto represents a misguided philosophy which teaches the citizens to give up the rights for the sake of the common good but it also ends in a police state. This is called preventative justice. Control is a key concept. Read this carefully. Abolishment of private property. Heavy progressive income tax. Abolishment of all rights of inheritance. Confiscation of property for all immigrants and rebels. A central bank. Government control of communication and transportation. Government ownership of factories and agriculture. 
government control of labor, corporate farms, regional planning. By the way, to have corporate farms, you just about have to take over all the farms, don't you? Well, what are they doing in this country today? The big conglomerates are coming in and taking over the, the farms and the ranches. When, they can't, when you can't meet your note in IRS, like in the Gordon Call case. Government control of education. Now, let's, uh, let's look at... Uh, I took this out of the book recently. Uh, and these are there. We're going back to the Illuminati now. We're going back 200 years. In a meeting on July the 16th, 1782, they set forth a seven-part goal. Order of chaos, abolition of private property, abolishment of inheritance, uh, patriotism, all religion, abolishment of the family. What are they doing in this country today? Look at the moral fibers that are being destroyed through drugs. Drugs that are being brought into this country by government people. Creation of a new world order. 1782, a new world order. Number 21, economic war. Plans to rob the Goyams of their landed properties and industries were then discussed. A combination of high taxes an unfair competition was advocated to bring about the economic ruin of the Goyam as far as their national financial interests and investments were concerned. In the international field, he felt that they could be encouraged to price themselves out of the markets. This could be the achievement, could, could be achieved by the careful control of raw materials, organized agitation amongst the workers for shorter hours and higher pay, and by subsidizing competitors. The speaker warned his co-conspirators that they must arrange matters and control conditions so that the increased wages obtained by the workers will not benefit them in any way. What's happening today? The price of cattle. You, uh, somebody told me that cattle in Texas is selling for 15 cents a pound. The feed is so high that they can't, they can't uh, buy the feed, among other things. What about uh, GATT and NAFTA, North American Free Trade? There's 16,400 Americans lose their jobs every day because since Gatton afterward passed. There's been over 800,000 people who've lost their jobs because of GATT and NAFTA. In the oil industry alone, from 1986 to 1992, the, the number of operating oil rigs dropped from 4,000 to less than 650. Oil was being uh, brought, we were self-sustaining ourselves to a degree, and in lieu of uh, the active oil wells, we have instead 15 super tankers that are bringing 15 million barrels of oil a day into Houston, Texas. Zapata Oil Company owns five of these super tankers. Zapata Oil Company is owned by the George Bush family. All the oil that we have in Alaska, I understand that uh, there's been a strike in Alaska, and we, there's no question we could be self-sustaining just from the oil that's available to us in that, in that state. Now, for the 26 years, from 1946 to 1971, speaking of the America's economy, 1946 to 1971, for 26 years, the U.S. trade had a surplus of $98 billion. The econ economy grew from 4.8% per year the national debt rose to $148 billion. For the next 23 years, from 1972 to 1994, 
the U.S. suffered a $1.6 trillion trade deficit, whereas we had a, a surplus of $98 billion before. The economy grew 3.8%. The federal debt. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, soared an annual rate of 3,200% per year, more than preceding 26, not per year, but the rate of 3,200% more than any preceding 26 years by 4.3 trillion dollars. So we have, where, where do we leave off? Number 21, 22, armaments. It was suggested that the building up of armaments for the purpose of making the Goyim destroy each other should be launched at such a colossal scale that in the final analysis, there will only be the masses of the proletariat left in the world with the few millionaires devoted to our cause and police and soldiers sufficient to protect our interests. Number 23, the new order. Members of the one world government would be appointed by the director. He would pick men from among the scientists, the economists, the financiers, the industrialists, and from the millionaires because in substance everything will be settled by the question of figures. Number 24, importance of youth. The importance of capturing the interest of youth was emphasized with the admonition that our agenturs should infiltrate into all classes and, and levels of society and government for the purpose of fooling, bemusing, and corrupting the younger members of society by teaching them theories and principles we know to be false. Well, certainly we have see that today in our youth. Look at the, uh, you know, when I was in, and I remember when I was in grade school and junior high and, and high school, I never even heard of drugs. Now my granddaughter tells me in junior high that there's drugs all over the place. It's going, it's more serious and more serious every day. Number 25, national and international laws should be changed, but should be used as they are to destroy the civilization of the Goyim, merely by twisting them into a contradiction of the interpretation which first masks the law and afterwards hides it all together. Our ultimate aim is to be uh, substitute arbitration by law. <clears throat> the speaker then told his listeners, you may think the goyim will rise upon us with arms, but in the West we have against this possibility an organization of such appalling terror that the very stoutest hearts uh, quail. The underground, the metropolitan metropolis, the subterranean corridors. These will be established in the capitals and cities of all the counties before that danger threatens. 
I have from a number of sources, these are confidential sources, that uh, there are numerous underground facilities available to our adversaries in, uh, throughout the United States. Um, I have been told by a source that's uh, reliable, a source that's involved in the intelligence community, that there is extensive city underground in the Las Vegas, Nevada area. I've also been told by reliable sources that there is a piece of equipment that will go through hard rock at the rate of, I think, 10 miles an hour. I'm not sure about how many miles an hour it'll go. And it'll spit this rock out, and you can drive a car or a train through it. Uh, I don't think there's any question about um, the underground subterranean efforts of this country. Going back to Nat and GAFTA, <clears throat> this is uh, sent to me by an attorney, and the position statement, the so-called free trade under NAFTA and GATT is neither free nor, nor fair. Free trade is newspeak for the subversive policy that was designed to destroy the American economy. It was hatched up by Harry, Harry Dexter White versus Frank Coe and Harold Glasser, mainlined by Senator George W. Malone on page uh, 76. The Senate Finance Committee heard testimony on GATT that 32 nations favored tariff goods on goods which they exported to the United States. Every one of these nations had recently increased its tariffs on American goods. Now, one of them imposed the tariffs for the only admissible business reason there is, namely, to equalize the wage standards of living between two countries engaged in trade. That's mainline page 77. If a $10,000 American automobile is sold on the American market, 4,000 of that price is made up of taxes paid to support the government in the United States where that market is made possible. A Japanese car makes no such contribution to the American infrastructure. President Nixon explained it clearly. If we buy steel rail from England, they have the money and we have the rail. If we buy steel rail from ourselves, we have both the money and the rail. Allowing products that do not pay American taxes or American wages to plunder American markets destroys American jobs. American dollars are taken out of the American economy where the money creates more American products with American jobs. It is not building walls to protect the American economy from an anti-American policy that tears down American productivity and prosperity. <clears throat> that, ladies and gentlemen, I think fairly well documents um, the goals and aims of the New World Order. And uh, then I would like to go on and describe some other activity that's taking place in this country. And by the way, before I forget, I need to tell you about a march oops, that's taking place right after the Republican Convention out of San Diego. It's going to take place from, uh, they're going to march from San Diego to uh, Washington, D.C. <clears throat> it's uh, being sponsored by uh, a, an organization known as CALL, uh, down at the bottom. See if this works down here. Here, call. Um, and call is Le Citizens Against Legal Loopholes. You might be interested in contacting these people uh, for a Liberty Weekend. They plan to have the rally in uh, D.C., and the number there at the bottom is 619-755-9319. And the purpose of the rally and the march to Washington, D.C., is to attract attention and to alert people to the problems that we're having in this country today. 
and particularly as it re in regards to the Constitution of the United States. Now, continuing uh, with the New World Order, I'd like to point out that uh, in this uh, newspaper article, August 27, 1994, at the bottom, in Oklahoma City, this article asks for applicants for a new federal transfer center in uh, Oklahoma City. And it was estimated that uh, thousands of Oklahomans uh, would apply for this job. The airport transfer, prison transfer center is designed to hold 1,400 inmates for a maximum of 10 days each. Officials anticipate the transfer center, center will remain in full capacity continuously. Why would we need a federal transfer center all of a sudden? at full capacity, 1,400 every 10 days. That's over 50,000 transfers a year. I think it's something like 55,000. I talked to an ex-con recently, federal prisoner. He was in the federal prison at one time, not anymore. He told me that the uh, federal prisoners are being used and being paid $5.50 a day to work at the uh, abandoned military bases and they are constructing concentration camps there. This is directly from the horse's mouth. Before George Bush left office, he signed a treaty with the United Nations. This is a document from the Army that I obtained through one of my sources. And it's called Bridges to America, Bridge to America partnership states and uh, this treaty which was not presented to Congress and so therefore after 90 days it was not ratified by Congress after 90 days it becomes law this treaty uh, designated foreign troops to be served to serve in various capacities in each state in our country United States for example in Texas would be Czechoslovakian troops. And while the Czechoslovakian troops are occupying Texas, American troops will be occupying uh, some countries overseas, certain countries overseas. California will be Ukrainian troops. Illinois, Polish troops. Uh, I don't see Kansas on there. I don't see Missouri. I see Alabama and Illinois. Poland. Illinois will be Polish troops. So. I don't know of those of you who are aware of this, but uh, not too long ago there was it was proposed the proposal for House Rule 666. Uh, they're pretty arrogant, aren't they? Was designed to allow police officers more leeway in searching suspects and properties, according to a summary prepared by a House subcommittee. HR 666 would legislatively expand the good faith exceptions to situations where law enforcement officials gather evidence without a warrant. In other words, if a police officer believes he or she has a good reason to search you or your property, he can. Conservatives have long argued correctly that too many criminals exploit technicalities to beat the rap. On the other hand, critics have pointed out correctly that the Fourth Amendment protects all Americans, including criminals, from illegal, unconstitutional search and seizure. What an officer feels is irrelevant where the Constitution has been violated 
uh, a legislative advocate of the civil liberties union. I don't know how you pronounce that. TAFA, I guess. The um, civil liberties union, national capital area, told the spotlight, this is just a new excuse to violate the Constitution. All of this hullabaloo is that law enforcement officers want separate rights, she added. Who will police the police? Apparently, some congressmen wanted to know the exact same thing. For example, Democratic amendments to the bill excluded agents of the Internal Revenue Service and the Bureau of Alcohol and Tobacco and Firearms from rule. Representative Jim Traficante, Traficant, Democrat Ohio, introduced the IRS exclusion, and Representative Harold Volkmer, a Democrat Missouri, insisted the BATF abide by the Fourth Amendment. They are the biggest abusers of the rights of the gun owners and private citizens, Volkmer said. They're like a Rambo operation, and people here are realizing that. Representative Joseph Serrano, Democrat in New York, introduced an amendment to have the Immigration Naturalization Service excluded. It was defeated 330 to 103. The real danger of House Rule 666 lies in the attitude of Republicans. Where, uh, when Representative Melvin Watt, Democrat in North Carolina, proposed replacing language in the bill with language very similar to the Fourth Amendment, the House voted 303 to 121 against his amendment. Representative Bill McCollum, Republican Florida, the bill sponsor, said the language would gut the bill. Several Republicans agreed with him on the record. What the Democrats weren't telling anyone is the Democratic-controlled houses of the 101st and 102nd Congress passed bills aimed at doing the same thing, possibly pinning citizens to unconstitutional warrantless searches, according to the subcommittee report. This bill, I understand, is not passed. It was proposed. I don't know how many of you are aware of a survey. This was, uh, uh, again, by uh, Spotlight. By the way, I don't know if any of you take the Spotlight, but it's a, a very good alternative source, also Media Bypass. There's a publication contact in uh, Las Vegas that has uh, some good information. And, uh, but you... Oh, it did pass, okay. 666 did pass. Um, the Spotlight uh, has obtained a copy of the survey given to members of the U.S. Marine Corps asking, among other things, the willingness to serve in various capacities under the command of the United Nations. Uh, the most frightening of all, however, was a question asking if they had any reservations about upon the citizens who refused to turn over their personal firearms as part of a gun confiscation program. The survey was given to Marines on May 10th at the 29 Palms Marine Corps base located on the southeast corner of the Mojave Desert, about 70 miles due south of San Bernardino, California, just east of Los Angeles. Among other things, the Marine facility is the site of the Corps, uh, I can't read that, commanded by Brigadier General Sutton, an expeditionary air force which is used as a test and training center for the Marines of the 1st Unmanned Aerial Vehicle Combat Company which utilized unmanned aerial drones intended for long-range reconnaissance purposes. According to a young Marine who provided a copy of the survey to the spotlight, it was given by a naval commander who claims he was working on his master's degree and was writing his thesis about giving up our military sovereignty to the United Nations Secretary General. Those taking the survey were limited to veterans of Operation Just Cause, the U.S. invasion of Panama, Operation Desert Storm, the war against Iraq, or Operation Restore Hope, the supposed humanitarian mission to feed starving Somalians. While the surveys were being passed out to the young Marines, one was able to obtain two copies from the pile of questionnaires. Under the breeding, under the heading Combat Arms Survey, the questionnaire stated, 
That question is, is to gather data concerning the attitude of combat trained personnel with regards to non-traditional missions. All of your responses are confidential. Write your answer directly in the questionnaire form. In part two, place an X in the space provided for your response. The series of situations posed to the servicemen is as follows. The U.S. runs a field training exercise. U.N. combat troops should be allowed to serve in U.S. combat units during these exercises under U.S. command and control. The United Nations runs a field training exercise. U.S. combat troops under U.S. command and control should serve in U.N. combat unit during these exercises. The UN runs a field training exercise. U.S. combat troops should serve under UN command and control during these exercises. U.S. combat troops should participate in UN missions under United Nations command and control. U.S. combat troops should be commanded by UN officers and non-commissioned officers at battalion and company levels while performing UN missions. And it goes on and on. I feel the President of the United States has the authority to pass his responsibilities, Commander-in-Chief, to the Secretary General. I feel there is conflict, and, the, and it goes on. But to make a long story short, uh, I would, one of the questions, as you can see, was I would fire upon U.S. citizens who refused to resist confiscation of firearms banned by the U.S. government. The results of the survey were not available right there, but the ultimate result was 75% of the Marines said that they would not fire on a fellow citizen. And unfortunately, 25% said that they would fire on a fellow citizen. Um, I uh, wanted to get into some other case files and some specifics uh, for the next uh, two hours. And uh, so I, uh, I basically, uh, that, that's basically the uh, situation as of this first two hours. Thanks. Thank you very much and welcome back for the next two hours. I'm going to continue with uh, further indications of intervention by evil sources, evil forces to establish a one world order through the new world order. I'd like to mention to begin with that the there is a device, it's a bean, that it can be uh, reduced you can peel the outer layer off of it, the castor bean, <clears throat> and you can breathe it, eat it, or put it on your skin, and it will induce a heart attack that's not traceable. This, this is being used by the CIA, according to my sources, and um, the bean is deadly even without any preparation, either eaten or or powdered and inhaled or through an open wound or through your membranes. The rice itself is much more and through the eyes and the nose. This is sold as a novelty only. This is a, a pamphlet that I have. It tells about how to make this poison. Of course, I don't ever intend to use it myself, but I just thought I might mention to you some of the devices that are being used by this evil element that's permeated into our society, throughout our society. There's some other matters that are being taken care of by our adversaries and again this is from one of my sources and uh, this is called the uh, video dome signal it's operating about six cycles away from the harmonic 
of the nation's power lines and specifically phase modulated to the exact frequency of all US TV networks. This powerful and sinister mind control and behavior modification signal is beamed to override all television programming 24 hours per day and in a subliminal fashion bypassing the conclusion the conscious mind into the TV viewers living room. This is all coordinated by the National Bureau of Standards in Boulder, Colorado where the uh, military's master computer is housed by the way. For complete details of what the uh, video dome signal ultimately does to those people most sensitive to it, see the movie Videodrome. It's based on science fiction fact, but not, it is not science fiction. The Videodrome signals is subliminal via video UHF, VHF TV, and usually consists of ideas and scenes of violence, sexual perversion, fear, guilt, or grief. It is stage one of a preconditioning. These are purposely projected for electronic mind control, EMC, and programming of the masses for the ultimate purpose of slavery. Some more information from one of my sources. Project Gravan, a super secret plan initiated in 1991 to forcibly eliminate all Americans and other individuals who have been determined to be active opponents of the New World Order. Military personnel highly trained in quick combat techniques such as SWAT team tactics will be sanctioned to enter into a town or a city and using computer listings locate those who are classed as dissidents to the New World Order and to exterminate these people quickly and be gone within an hour or so moving from city to city in such a manner as to not leave much trace for local law authorities to follow. The plan is to claim these people eliminated were involved in drug dealings and that it was merely part of a drug war and to keep the information out of the news media. I might uh, start the second half by stating and by pointing out that among the many problems we have is the child organized child kidnapping ring that's operating not only in uh, Nebraska but also in Washington DC and I'll start with the finders case this is not an official document cover this is something that my one of my technicians put together but the finders case began on uh, February 5th, 1987. And on that occasion, the Tallahassee Police Department received a phone call, and uh, the phone call, the caller stated that there were two men, well-dressed men, and uh, a, uh, six young children who were in the park in Tallahassee and uh, this anonymous phone call, you see it there, two well-dressed men wearing suits. The police proceeded to the location. They found uh, these two men there near a 1980 Blue Dodge bearing Virginia license so-and-so, the inside of which was later described as foul-smelling, filled with maps, books, letters, 
with a mattress situated in the rear of the van, which appeared as if it were used as a bed. The overall appearance of the van gave the impression that all eight persons were living in it. The children were covered with insect bites, were very dirty. Most of the children were not wearing underwear, and all the children had not been bathed in many days. The men were arrested and charged with multiple counts of child abuse and lodged in the Leon County Jail. Once in custody, the men were somewhat evasive in their answers to the police regarding the children and stated only that they both were the children's teachers and that all were en route to Mexico established a school for brilliant children. The children tentatively were identified as Mary Houlihan, white female, age seven, Max Livingston, and white male, age six, and so on. The next child, age four, the next child, age three, the next child, age two, and age two, obviously related to Mary. The children initially indicated that they lived in tents in a commune in the Washington, D.C. area and were going to Mexico to go to a school for smart kids. The office contacted, this is the um, customs agent, by the way, this is the report of investigation, Department of the Treasury, this is an official report that was given to me. This office, the customs agent, who's a good guy, okay, contacted the office of the RACDC, that's District of Columbia, and spoke with agent so-and-so, Bob Harold. This agent requested telephone numbers and names of police persons in area departments that might be aware of said activities described by the children and to follow up on the leads, which were the Virginia license number and a check of the men's names with local law enforcement. And the report goes on, and uh, it says that the, the two adults were well-dressed, white males. They had custody of six children. And uh, it goes on and continues, describes the, the van. And they, uh, the police, upon interviewing the children, the officers found that they could not adequately identify themselves or their custodians. Further, they stated that they were en route to Mexico to attend a school for smart kids. And uh, Agent uh, Kaitlow was further advised that the children were unaware of the functions and the purpose of telephones, television, and toilets, and that the children had stated they were not allowed to live indoors and were only given food as a reward. This continues with the report. They were, uh, this office, the uh, customs agent, was contacted by Jim Bradley with the Metropolitan Police Department and uh, related to a case that currently is working in Washington, D.C. area. He said the actions of the two men in custody relative to the children just might give this case, his case enough probable cause to search the, for search warrants to search premises occupied by cult groups called the Finders. The Finders. This agent directed Bradley to telephone uh, Tallahassee Police Department and discuss with the police directly any activities forthcoming relative to the case. At this time, it was determined that there was no customs violations found to exist, and therefore this case is being closed, pending receipt of additional information, and so forth. This is the uh, identifiable data and the inquiry that was made concerning the two men arrested and the finders group. report goes on, after receiving the request from Tallahassee Police, um, requested that I conduct computer checks on the Custom Child Pornography Unit database. The checks were to be conducted in the names, addresses, and vehicles provided. 
After conducting the computer checks, I made direct contact with Agent So-and-so and informed him that all the checks were negative. At that time, I was informed that the Tallahassee police had discovered large quantities of records to include computer disks and a U.S. passport in the van. From some of these records, the police had obtained uh, tentative identification of the two adults and partial identification of the children. Furthermore, the two Washington, D.C. addresses had been discovered through these documents, one of which was verified through the vehicle registration. I advised so Agent So-and-so I was leaving headquarters and he would be receiving a response to the remainder of his request from Agent So-and-so. I then left the state as stated and proceeded to conduct further business in the district. A short time later at approximately 11.30 a.m., Agent Harold contacted me by radio and advised me that a Detective Bradley, Metropolitan Police, Washington, D.C., was interested in the information provided by Kreitlow, <coughs> was in contact with Tallahassee and would very probably be conducting search warrants in the area later in the day. He also informed me that U.S. Customs was invited to participate due to the continuing possibility of violations of law enforcement uh, by the Customs Service. As I was already in Washington, I terminated my other business and proceeded to make contact with Detective Bradley uh, of the Metropolitan Police Department. Upon contacting Detective Bradley, learned that he had initiated an investigation on the two addresses provided by the Tallahassee Police during December of 86. An informant had given him information regarding a cult known as the Finders, operating various businesses out of a warehouse located at 1307 4th Street Northeast, and were supposed to be housing children at 3918 and 3920 W Street Northwest. The information was specific in describing blood rituals and sex orgies involving children, and an as-yet unsolved murder in which the Finders may be involved. With the information provided by the informant, Detective Bradley was able to match some of the children in Tallahassee with names of children known alleged to be in the custody of the finders. Further, Bradley was able to match the tentative ID of the adults with known members of the finders. I stood by while Bradley consulted with U.S. Attorney Brenner, Benner and obtained search warrants for the two premises. I advised Acting Agent uh, Holloran of my intention to accompany the Metropolitan Police Department on the execution of the warrants received his permission and was joined by so-and-so. During the ex uh, execution of the warrants at 3918 and 20 W Street, I was able to observe and access the entire building. I saw large quantities of children's clothing and toys. The clothing consisted of diapers and clothes in the uh, toddler to preschool range. No children were found on the premises. There were several subjects on the premises. Only one was deemed to be connected with the finders. The rest were renting living space from this individual. He was identified as Stuart Miles Silverstone, so-and-so passport number so-and-so. He was located in a room occupied with several computers, printers, and numerous documents. Cursory examination of the documents revealed detailed instructions for obtaining children for unspecified purposes. The instructions included the impregnation of female members of the community known as finders, purchasing children, trading, and kidnapping. There were telex messages using MCI account numbers between a computer terminal believed to be located in the same room and others located across the country and in foreign locations. One such telex specifically ordered... <coughs> Pardon me. Thank you. One such telex specifically ordered the purchase of two children in Hong Kong to be arranged through a contact in the Chinese embassy there. 
Another telex expressed an interest in secret bank secrecy situations. Other documents identified interests in high-tech transfers to the United Kingdom, numerous properties under the control of the finders, a keen interest in terrorism, explosives, and the evasion of law enforcement. Also found in the computer room was a detailed summary of the events surrounding the arrest and taking into custody the two adults and six children in Tallahassee, Florida on the previous night. There were also a set of instructions which appeared to be broadcast via a computer network which advised participants to move the children and keep them moving through different jurisdictions and instructions on how to avoid police attention. That means that would indicate to me they had other children in the location and after they were apprehended they figured it might lead back to this location and so they moved children out of there. One of the residents was identified as a Chinese national due to the telex discovered referencing the Chinese embassy in Hong Kong. He was fully identified for future reference. And it goes on. He is in the U.S. as a graduate student. During the course of the evening, I contacted section, Sector 4 initiation to initiate a text check on Silverstone and initiate an archives check for him over the last four years. I was also contacted by Agent So-and-So to keep him advised of the proceedings and ask for and receive permission to contact so-and-so of the so-and-so. Let's see. I later contacted Sullivan for the Bev State Bird. I gave him background on the purpose of the request. I advised him that the information was not for dissemination headquarters. The region was being notified. And that region probably contact headquarters later as deemed necessary. There were, uh, during the search warrant, there were extremely large quantities of documents and computer equipment at the warehouse. Uh, the Metropolitan Police was posting officers inside the building. They were sealing the building until morning, in which a second warrant for that premise uh, would be obtained and executed. Agent Harrell also advised me that the news media had been notified and had been waiting for execution of a warrant on the 4th Street address. Does anybody remember reading about this in the newspapers? Okay. You're going to find out. This is news. This is major news, and I'll tell you at the la on the last page. Um, talking about controlling the press, ladies and gentlemen, believe me, um, that the news media had been notified. Detective Bradley later stated that the Metropolitan Police Department information officer had been contacted. I guess my is out. When it became apparent, the, uh, there was no information on the search warrant. The reporter contacted local news media. Uh, here it is. Uh, for the search warrants, disclosed the location and purpose of the warrant. Detective Bradley some surmised that someone in the Tallahassee Police Department was the original source of information for the press. And it goes on. Now, uh, I met Detective Bradley at the warehouse, granted limited access to the premises. I was able to observe numerous documents which described explicit sexual conduct between the members of the community known as the Finders. I also saw a large collection of photographs of unidentified persons. Some of the photographs were nudes believed to be members of the Finders. There were numerous photos of children, some nude, at least one of which was a photo of a child on display and appearing to accent the child's, accent the child's genitals. I was also able to examine a very small amount of the photographs at this time. However, one of the officers presented me with a photo album for my review. The album contained a series of photos of adults and children dressed in white sheets participating in a blood ritual. The ritual centered around the execution of at least two goats, 
The photos portrayed the execution, disembowelment, skinning, and dismemberment of the goats at the hands of the children. This included the removal of the testes of the male goat, goat, the discovery of a female goat's womb, and the baby goats inside the womb, and the presentation of a goat's head to one of the children. By the way, we're going to see later on, I'm going to show you uh, a, a drawing of a, uh, a totem pole that's used in satanic ceremonies. This drawing will be by a six-year-old child. That's one of the highest levels of Satanism. So it's very apparent here from this goat, using the goat, that this is probably a high level uh, for Satanism. There's various levels involved in Satanism. Further inspection of the premises disclosed numerous files relating to activities of the organization in different parts of the world. Locations I observed are as follows. London, Germany, the Bahamas, Japan, Hong Kong, Malaysia, Africa, Costa Rica, and Europe. There was also a file identified as Palestinian. Other files were identified by member name or project name. The project appearing to be operated for commercial purposes under front names for the finders. There was one file entitled Pentagon Break-In and others which referred to, to members operating in foreign countries. Not observed by me, but related by the Metropolitan Police Department were intelligence files on private families not related to the finders. That means they're gathering information on people not involved with the finders. I have uh, been told by Satanists that uh, if a pedophile or a practicing Satanist wants a blue-eyed, blonde-haired child, they can actually give an order out and they will get five or six pictures of a blue-eyed, blonde-haired child and they'll pick out the child they want and then they go kidnap that child. The process undertaken appears to have been a systematic response to a local newspaper advertisement for babysitters, tutors, etc. A member of the finders would respond and gather as much information as possible about the habits, identity, occupation, etc. of the family. The use to which this information was to be put is still unknown. There was also a large amount of data collected on various child care organizations. We're going to talk about child care organizations later on. We're going to talk about the McMartin case, a famous case out of Manhattan Beach, California. The warehouse contained a large library, two kitchens, sauna, hot tub, and a video room. The video room seems to be set up as an indoctrination center. It also appeared that the organization had the capability to produce its own videos. There were what appeared to be training areas for children and what appeared to be an altar set up in a residential area of the warehouse. Many jars of urine and feces were located in the area. I should also mention that both premises were equipped with satellite discs, dish antennas. I discussed the course of action to be taken by the Metropolitan Police Department. Uh, Detective Bradley stated he was only interested in making the child abuse cases. I was assured that all of the evidence would be available to the U.S. Customs for furtherance of any investigative criminal action pursued. Metropolitan Police personnel were to begin a round-the-clock review and sorting of the evidence until completed. The Customs will have access after this is accomplished. This will include several U.S. passports discovered during the search. Upon leaving the 4th Street premises, I encountered a news media representative and was asked the reason behind U.S. Customs involvement in the investigation. I advised the reporter that I could not discuss anything and referred her to uh, RACDC. I left immediately thereafter. There's no further information available at this time. It should be take three to five days for all the information to be sorted, reviewed, logged by the Metropolitan Police. I will maintain contact with Detective Bradley until the evidence is again accessible. <clears throat> again, we're still talking about an official report, U.S. government. It's right up there. On Thursday, 
February 5th, Senior Agent Harold and I assisted the Washington Metropolitan Police Department with two search warrants involving um, the possible sexual exploitation of children. During the course of the search warrants, numerous documents were discovered which appeared to be concerned with international trafficking in children, high-tech transfers to the United Kingdom, and international transfer of currency. On uh, March 31, 1987, I contacted James Bradley of the Washington Metropolitan Police Department. I, was, I uh, was to meet with Bradley to review the documents seized pursuant to two search warrants executed in February 87. The meeting was to take place April 2nd or 3rd, 1987. Read this next three paragraphs, close four paragraphs. On April 2nd, 1987, I arrived at the Metropolitan Police Department at approximately 9 a.m. Detective Bradley was not available. I spoke with a third party who was willing to discuss the case with me on a strictly off-the-record basis. I was advised that all the passport data had been turned over to the State Department for their investigation. The State Department, in turn, advised the Metropolitan Police that all travel and use of the passports by the holders of the passports was within the law and no action would be taken. This included travel to Moscow, North Korea, and North Vietnam from the late 1950s to the mid-1970s. Weren't we at war during that period with these people? And I think travel was forbidden in those days, right? when you're at war with the country. This individual further advised me of circumstances which indicated that the investigation into the activity of the finders, watch this, look at this, had become a CIA internal matter. The Metropolitan Police Report has been classified secret. It was not available for review. I was advised that the FBI had withdrawn from the investigation several weeks prior and that the FBI Foreign Counterintelligence Division, that's headquarters, by the way, had directed the Metropolitan Police Department not to advise FBI Washington Field Office, that's the field division in Washington, D.C., of anything that had transpired. No further information will be available. No further action will be taken. That tells you a little bit about the finders, I believe. And I have a confidential informant report it has obviously been misplaced, and we will find it here in just a minute. And again, this is information from a confidential source. The finders. A CIA front formed during the 1960s. It has top clearance and protection in its assigned task of kidnapping and torture programming young children across the United States. Its specially trained government kidnappers are known to be sexual degenerates who involve the children in satanic sex orgies and bloody rituals, as well as the murders of other children and the slaughter of animals. The Finders uses a fleet of unmarked vans to grab targeted children from parks and schoolyards. They then drug the children and transport them to a series of safe houses for special training. Marion David, I don't need to mention his last name, the leader of the Finders cult, he is identified, an identified homosexual pedophile and a CIA officer whose son was an employee of the CIA proprietary firm Air America 
which was notorious for its smuggling of drugs out of the Golden Triangle into Saigon during the Vietnam War, destined for the United States. Do I have a picture of this fellow? I don't have one with me, okay? Now, let me just mention one other thing. I've already talked about the Nebraska case, and I urge all of you to get a copy of the Franklin Cover-Up book by John DeCamp. It's out of print, but he did give me permission to make copies, photocopies of it, and make it available to you. During this investigation, which I mentioned in the first two hours, it was learned, and I was told personally by Paul Benassi and others, that in Nebraska, this evil element, these people were taking children out of private schools, and uh, they were using them as decoys. They used Paul Benassi particularly as decoys. These are kids that are trained, by the way. And Paul himself personally told me how it was done. And when he was 10, 11, 12 years old, he now is 28, 29 years old. When he was uh, 10, 11, 12 years old, he would go out with the adults and um, attract, and as a decoy, bring the children in shopping malls or parks over near the car or cars or the vans. And when they'd get close, the adults would grab the kids and make off with them. They'd use two vans or two automobiles because that way, if there was a witness, they'd be confused as to what the license number was. Paul told me that uh, these kids were then kept in safe houses, the same information that my informant has here. It's a separate informant, by the way. By the way, Paul is a born-again Christian, and uh, that's why one of the reasons I'm sure he's been talking and furnishing information. He's not furnishing everything. He's been used some discretion, obviously, because there have been attempts on his life. But uh, Paul told me that these kids would be kept in safe houses across the country, uh, taken to Las Vegas or Toronto, Canada, in some instances, not every instance, and auctioned off at both of those locations. He told me he had attended six such auctions in Las Vegas, and uh, as few as six, as many as 36 children were there. A blue-eyed, blonde-haired child will sell for $50,000. So $50,000 times uh, 36 is uh, a pretty substantial amount of money. Uh, I personally became incensed, of course, as I'm sure you are, that this is going on in our country and the law enforcement is doing virtually nothing about it. Worse than that, they're covering it up. And I wrote letters. I've got the letters in volume three of this file. This says uh, Corruption, Satanic Cult, Drug Network, and Missing Children. I wrote letters to the Honorable Don Stenberg, uh, Attorney General of the State of Nebraska, with a copy to Ben Nelson, the governor. I wrote a letter to the FBI. I wrote a letter to the uh, Attorney General of the United States. Uh, and uh, I told them, you don't have to take my word for it. I mean, uh, just come call me. And I will give you the names of my informants and my sources. You interview the children yourself, and you decide whether there's any credibility here. You decide if there's an investigation that's necessary. And uh, I received two responses, and they're in this volume also. One response said, your sources are not credible, and of course they don't know who my sources are. And the other one said, there's no documentation. Steinberg wrote back and said, you don't have adequate documentation. I wrote him back immediately. I gave him the documentation. It's in this same report, by the way, and I have not heard from him since. As far as the FBI is concerned, I never received a response from them. I did receive a response from the Attorney General's office, a nebulous response. It's in there also. So uh, 
you know, the FBI and the Department of Justice, they can tell you how many bank robberies occurred last year. Uh, they can tell you how many aggravated assaults, how many statutory rapes. Uh, but they cannot tell you how many children disappear every year. Nobody knows for sure how many people disappear every year. They can actually tell you, the FBI can, in homicide cases, how many children, boys or girls, killed mother, how many boys or girls killed father, how many husbands killed wives, and so forth. But they can't tell us how many children disappear every year. This is a national disgrace, absolutely national disgrace. And I contend, right here and now, that this is by design. They don't want to know. They don't want the American people to know how many children disappear every year. Actually, there are, according to the Reader's Digest, there are 100,000 children disappear every year. But the number of children who are missing is really not known for sure. The number of total missing individuals in this country is estimated up to close to 2 million. In, uh, but most of those people do return. But this situation with the missing children, the children that are being auctioned off. Paul told me the story about um, he flew on a plane from Omaha to Los Angeles with some of these people. Uh, and uh, and uh, there was a young boy on there. The young boy cried the whole way out to Los Angeles, young, young child. Paul never saw him come back to Nebraska, doesn't know what happened to him. Paul has told me about snuff films that he was involved in where he went into a cage uh, in, uh, where they hold the Bilderberger, not the Bilderberger, but the Bohemian Grove meetings in Northern California. And uh, he's talked about satanic ceremonies in front of the owl at the Bohemian Grove. And um, he talked, he's, in, in fact, in the Franklin cover-up book, it's, there's a story in there about one of the snuff films he participated in. Uh, he lived because he was part of the network, part of their network. Uh, fortunately, as I said, uh, he's a born-again Christian now. Also, Paul told me about uh, on a number of occasions he would be given a ticket, airline ticket, fly to Los Angeles as a child. He would meet a man and a woman he'd never seen before, and there would be five passports for five different names, and, and he, he and this, uh, this couple would uh, fly off and, and drop drugs all over the world. He also talked about a customs agent that was dirty in the LAX area, Los Angeles area. So uh, the story goes on and on and on. By the way, uh, Paul, uh, at the, under the direction of John DeCamp, filed lawsuits against uh, all the people that were involved and that have been identified. This included uh, former past publisher of the Omaha World Herald, Harold Anderson, uh, Bob Wadman, former chief of police, Eugene Mahoney, and others. And um, the, uh, John DeCamp said, told me, all we need is the videotapes. That's the smoking gun in this case. And uh, back uh, when the case initially broke, the um, police raided the um, home of one of the participants, found 90 videotapes. The tapes were kept in the custody of the Omaha Police Department for a considerable period of time. When John DeCamp uh, put pressure on uh, the police department to come forth with the tapes, they were taken out of there and secretly taken into the court system. They were taken into the state court. The state court said it was a federal matter. It was a jurisdiction of the federal government. Uh, the uh, state court then referred it to the federal government. The federal government uh, eventually said, uh, I think they may have referred it back. I'm not sure whether in the end either the state or the federal government had custody of it. But the long and the short of it is 
that uh, initially these uh, participants, these, these people that were involved in this ring, said there were no tapes. And then when they found out there were tapes, uh, they said, well, there's nothing on the tapes that would be incriminating. Yet the tapes had never been made public. And then when they found out that, uh, that, that they were going into the court system with the tapes, uh, they, went, they appealed to the court that they, they not be made public, uh, they be kept in the custody of the court because they would destroy the reputation of reputable individuals. So, so as I say, that's the Nebraska case that ties into the Finders case out of Washington, D.C. There is more than adequate documentation, the documentation on the Franklin cover-up book uh, that's available, as I mentioned to you earlier. And uh, there's uh, additional information uh, that would be available, and it is available as we go along. Now, you see there, oh, if you will notice, that is iced tea from last night. That's where I spilled it in my lecture. Okay, let's go and let's talk about the, uh, let's talk about, we're going to talk some more later on. Let's talk about the Oklahoma City bombing. Okay? Now, let me tell you something, folks. Before George Bush left office, the anti-terrorism bill was uh, written. One of the authors, who was a Department of Justice attorney at the time, and is now a practicing attorney in Washington, D.C., made the statement publicly that before this bill will be passed, people will have to be killed. Okay. Now, along comes the, not the Oklahoma City bombing, but the World Trade Center bombing. And this is an article in the New York Times. It also appeared, the similar information appeared in the Los Angeles Times, October 28, 1993. And this article talks about Imad A. Salem, or Salem, who is an informer for the FBI. Mr. Salem, a 43-year-old former Egyptian army officer, was used by the government to penetrate a circle of Muslim extremists now charged in two bombing cases, the World Trade Center attack and a foiled ploy to destroy the United Nations, the Hudson River tunnels and other New York City landmarks. He was a crucial witness in the second bombing case, but his work for the government was erratic, and for months before the World the Trade Center blast, he was feuding with the FBI. After uh, the bombing, he uh, resumed his undercover work in an un dated transcript of a conversation from that period. Mr. Salem recounts a talk he had had earlier with agents about an unnamed FBI supervisor who he said came and messed it up. He requested to meet me in the hotel, Mr. Salem says of the supervisor. He requested to make me to testify and he didn't push for that. We'll be going building the bomb with a phony powder and grabbing the people who will be involved in it. But since you And that continues over on page. We, he didn't do that. Well, it looks like I left out a part of the page. The transcript, transcript quotes Mr. Salem as saying that he wanted to complain to FBI and headquarters in Washington, D.C. about the Bureau's failure to stop the bombing, but was dissuaded by an agent identified as John Andesev, I guess. He said he didn't think that the New York people would like this thing. To make a long story short, ladies and gentlemen, over here, Another point in the transcript, Mr. Salem recounts a conversation he said he had with Ms. Antikve, uh, saying, guys, now you saw this bomb went off, and you both know that we could avoid that. At another point, Mr. Salem says, you get paid, you get guys, to prevent problems like this from happening. 
To make a long story short, this man was an FBI handler, FBI informant. His FBI handler, uh, in a conversation with him, he recorded his conversation with the FBI handler. The, this documents that the FBI knew in advance they were going to bomb the World Trade Center bombing did not, did not prevent it from happening. Six people killed, half a million dollars in damage, over a thousand people injured. If I was a congressman or a senator in Washington, D.C., and I knew that the FBI could have prevented a bombing, any bombing, I would be stomping up and down on my desk, and I would ask for an immediate investigation. I personally handled uh, a bombing conspiracy in Los Angeles when I was the special, senior special agent in charge there. <clears throat> we had the weather underground that planned to bomb a state senator's office. We planted our informants in the uh, group. Our informants uh, were actually FBI undercover agents. And we went right up to the morning of the bombing before um, we arrested them and tried them for conspiracy. But that brings me now up to the present time, or I should say a year ago, last April the 19th. I'm in my living room, relaxing. I'm watching the television. And the bombing occurred. And I watched the TV news. And they were saying it was an ammonia nitrate bomb. And then I received a fax. And according to this fax, uh, this fax was uh, from the University of Oklahoma Geology uh, Department. And it was a survey, University of Oklahoma. According to this fax, the seismogram, there were two detonations, one there and one there. That, by the way, I talked to uh, Dr. Brown at the University of Oklahoma. That was a, a train went by just before this, so that doesn't count right there. But uh, they said that very clearly there was an explosion. There was an explosion or detonation or ground swell. 9.02 and 3 seconds. And again, 10 seconds later, 9.02 and 13 seconds. And I'll give you a, a large, larger view of that. Now there's an enlargement of it. That's the train there. Here's the first one. That's the second one. I called a friend of mine. Uh, unfortunately, he's in jail. He was, uh, I have friends in jail. He was a CIA agent in his day, and he was going to testify against the government on the Inslaw case. And uh, he calls me two, three, four times a week, by the way. And uh, he was told, warned, uh, before he was going to sign an affidavit on the Inslaw case, if you sign that affidavit, um, you will go to jail. Six weeks after he signed the affidavit, he was arrested, and he's now serving 30 years first offense for manufacturing drugs. Uh, for your information, the story on the Inslaw case, just one of many, uh, this was a, a computer system by, uh, developed by a fellow named Bill Hamilton, and it included, involved what, was it, what is called the Promise Software. This tied the whole network, law enforcement, the courts, the locals, and the federals together in one big network. And Bill Hamilton developed it, called it the Inslaw, the Promise Software, sold it, leased it to the Department of Justice for three years. At the end of two years, the Department of Justice refused to pay him. He went into uh, bankruptcy court. Filed a lawsuit, won the lawsuit in bankruptcy court, spent several million dollars winning the lawsuit. And uh, the, the case was appealed by the government. And uh, the 
courts came out, the appellate court came back and said, uh, you have to go into another court, you're in the wrong court, fellow, you start all over again. And uh, so he's in the position now where he's bankrupt and what happened to the computer system? It was sold by the, it was given by the Department of Justice to a, a man named Earl Bryant, he used to be head of the uh, UPI, you know, Press International. Earl Bryant had raised millions of dollars for Ronald Reagan, it was a political payoff. Bryant then turned around and sold it back to the Department of Justice, uh, I understand, for in the area of $10 million. It was then sold to the Israelis and to the Canadians with the trap door in it, which meant that we were able to retrieve any information that they developed on it. Anyway, that's, and Michael had worked on it as a CIA agent to refine it, and he was going to testify for Bill Hamilton in that regard. That gives you a little background on Michael. By the way, there's extensive intelligence information about Michael in this in my bombing report talks about some of his past activities. His family owned the, the um, Hercules manufacturing company out of the Silicon Valley and uh, Michael is uh, very intelligent, one of the, probably one of the brightest men I've ever known. Anyway, Michael calls me and I tell him, hey Michael, uh, there's two detonations, not one, and the government says this is an ammonia nitrate fertilizer bomb. Michael says, not possible. And he said, that's my bomb. Well, what he's talking about there is the uh, ammonia nitrate, not the ammonia, uh, uh, the uh, electrohydrodynamic gaseous fuel device. This shows you some of the damage, by the way. Now, uh, uh, ammonia nitrate bomb, or fertilizer bomb, disperses 360 degrees, evenly, or unevenly, really. It also lets off gases, and uh, Immediately after the bombing, people would not have been able to go into the building without uh, gas masks. And, uh, but there was, people went in there immediately and they, they did not have gas masks on. This shows the damage to the building. Look at this. And a half a moon there, and then comes back out. This was a directional bomb. Um, there have been several theories on the General Pardon had a theory uh, that, he, that somebody wrapped the pillars down below. Uh, Galen Windsor said it was a neutron bomb and so forth. We don't know for sure what it was. We think it was the electrohydrodynamic gaseous fuel device, a combination of that and ammonia nitrate. Because we do know for a fact, uh, we're pretty sure that they bought uh, at least 4,000 pounds worth of uh, fertilizer, McVeigh and Nichols. Of course, they haven't been convicted yet, so we can't say that they are guilty. We have to be very careful with that. But you, you can see from this, that the a greater vast amount of damage was right in this area. Now, ammonia nitrate bomb is not going to leave that much damage. It's going to be basically even all over. So, uh, here's some more damaged. So, uh, this is the version of our bomb, an abstract describing the operation of the electrohydrodynamic gaseous fuel device. When this bomb was tested by the U.S. government, it's a highly classified bomb. General Pardon, by the way, a very competent, a wonderful man, capable man, uh, he doesn't think that this bomb exists, but this bomb was developed after he left the service in the early 80s, 82. When it was tested, two technicians died. They, it was so powerful they had no idea it was, uh, it was as powerful as it was. And this is uh, a, a technical uh, explanation of it. This explanation is in the bombing report, Oklahoma City bombing report. Now, the way our bomb works, this uh, barometric bomb works, 
is there are there are releases of uh, two fuels, two gases, chemicals. The number one is a white chemical, the number two is a dark chemical. I talked to uh, survivors on the seventh and eighth floor, and I said, describe time-wise what you heard. And both of them, and they didn't know each other, they weren't in, in each other's presence when they told me this, both of them said, we heard boom, boom, with the second boom louder than the first. Boom, boom. This bomb of ours, this, uh, uh, this barometric bomb, the first boom releases white chemical cloud, and it blows out the windows and goes into the building. And then the second release releases a dark chemical cloud. And when they uh, 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 meet and get together, and when they marry, so to speak, the blast is unbelievable. Now, in the first instance where the white chemical cloud is released, if it does not uh, surround the whole pillar, like 360 degrees pillar, it will not destroy the pillar. It has to completely encompass it. That day there were 40 mile an hour gusts of wind, by the way. Uh, some of the pillars in the front were not destroyed. There was a lamp with uh, a street lamp that was not destroyed, but was near, parked near the truck. So uh, what we're saying is, uh, this was a directional bomb that has the signature of our bomb. The, uh, here you see right here is a pillar, first explosive force, the white chemical cloud would surround it, followed by the dark chemical cloud, which would totally disintegrate it. I talked to a man who was on the recovery crew. He was from Phoenix. He was one of the first ones over on the scene. Well, first one, I'd say, within uh, uh, nine or ten hours after it occurred. And he told me he'd never seen anything like it. He'd been to uh, bombings before. He said you needed a wheelbarrow and a shovel, and they carried the debris out in buckets because it was like sawdust, which, again, uh, is the signature of our bomb. This shows you uh, the first blast. It opens up like a flower, followed by the, the second blast. Now. I talked to a state assemblyman who was looking out the fifth floor of the state capitol building, and he told me that um, he's heard the, the blast, and he looked and he saw a white chemical cloud rise 150 feet above the building, followed by a dark chemical cloud. There was a lady interviewed on CNN who said that um, she saw everything white, and then all of a sudden everything was dark. And it's uh, based on these circumstances that uh, we feel uh, that uh, it was the electrohydrodynamic gaseous fuel device, the barometric bomb. That's an indication of it. We changed our thinking from this initial bomb to a combination of this plus the ammonia nitrate bomb. And uh, we have the contract number for this bomb, the government contract number. We've written and asked for uh, the contract, copy of the contract, and you think that we received a response? No, of course not. Uh, we uh, know that this bomb was, according to our information, manufactured by Dinah Nobel out of Salt Lake City, Utah. It blows out windows across the street. Now, there was some destruction in this one building across the street, and it did collapse, but it was an old, old building. But it was nothing, nothing like this. Nothing like this.
by the way, on the, um, the seismogram at the University of Oklahoma, I called them and confirmed uh, that their records were accurate. And they told me that within the first two days, I called them on April the 26th, by the way. They told me that within the first two days, by the 21st of April, four members of the media had been in there and obtained this information that there were two ground swells or two detonations, including ABC television. Yet, nobody reported it. Now, if you think back uh, to the pictures that you saw, um, the men went in. There was uh, a bomb scare the first day. I've been told that uh, there was a bomb, another bomb inside, that it was taken out on a stretcher as if it was uh, an injured person and taken out to uh, a military base and, and uh, detonated. Now, where was, if, if our bomb went boom, boom, what about the bomb that was 10 seconds later, right? 903 and 902 and 3 seconds and then 902 and 13 seconds, right? Well, what we think is it was our bomb was the initial blast, boom, boom. And by the way, it was so it was milliseconds apart, so fast that it wouldn't show up as two blasts on the seismogram. Our bomb, we feel, was the first ground swell, combination of both of them, boom, boom. And then the one ten seconds later, we think, was a, possibly an illegal stored, illegally stored bomb uh, by uh, the federal ATF. The morning, that morning at 7.30, the Oklahoma City Police Department bomb squad was parked across the street from the federal building. After the bomb exploded, uh, a lady who worked in the building but was not there that day was standing next to an ATF agent and asked him, and knew he was an ATF agent, asked him, where were you when the bomb exploded? And uh, he said, uh, well, we had a bomb scare. We were told we did not have to come to work today. There were no ATF agents killed. There were some DEA agents killed, and there were uh, some uh, Secret Service agents killed. In fact, there was a Secret Service agent who had just been reassigned from the White House to Oklahoma City who was killed in the blast. Uh, the ATF claims that uh, their people were out working on an all-night surveillance. And uh, also, by the way, one of the ATF agents claimed that he was on the eighth floor and dropped to the fifth floor in the elevator. And the elevator experts have come in, and, and we have documentation that that elevator has safety devices in it that prevent it from stopping, from dropping from floor to floor and out of control like that. So it's very obvious that this man was not telling the truth. The FBI housed in the other facilities away from the federal building. The morning of the 18th now, this is the day before, two of my employees had a, to go to the Veterans Administration Hospital in Las Vegas. They came back and after the Veterans Administration Hospital, they went to the Selective Service uh, building and they had some business there. They came back afterwards and both of them said, you know, something's, something's going to happen. Something's wrong because I've never seen armed guards at the Veterans Hospital and I've never seen armed guards at the Social Security office. And sure enough, the next day it did happen, as we knew. So what did happen? Well, uh, based on everything that we've been able to piece together, and I feel that we're really right on. And I might also mention that the Washington, D.C. editor of the London Telegraph has come out publicly and backs my theory on the bomb, our theory on the bomb, the, the barometric bomb. And uh, I might also mention that uh, an investigator at the scene 
who has fed us information confidentially, has told us it was a dual charge, which is the boom boom, has also told us that McVeigh was supposed to have been vaporized with the blast. He didn't go up with the blast, as we know. So what happened? Well, McVeigh was in special forces. The government says that he did not meet their standards and he was washed out of special forces. Notice I said the government says. And then he was sent to Fort Hayes, Kansas and given a discharge at Fort Hayes, Kansas. He uh, was demonstrating against the government on the, Rub not Ruby Ridge, but the Waco situation and was an outspoken critic of the government. And uh, on the Saturday before the 19th, he uh, went to the Junction City Body Shop, which rents rider trucks, and reserved a 20-foot truck, not a 24-foot truck, as the government claims. And the difference between a 20-foot truck and a 24-foot truck, and I personally went out to ride a truck and checked it out, is that the 20-foot truck has a side door on the panel, on the passenger side. And it's a door that opens up. The 24-foot truck does not have a door that opens up. Uh, John Doe II was identified with McVeigh that day by three witnesses. It was on Saturday. Monday, they picked up the automobile, the van. Tuesday, the van was seen at a lake outside Junction City, Kansas, uh, parked all day, drawn off by various witnesses, with a, next to a pickup truck that appeared to be a truck uh, similar to Larry Nichols, who's also been charged with the bombing. McVeigh was also identified, and also John Doe II, at the Dreamland Motel in Junction City, Kansas. And uh, it's been reported that McVeigh and John Doe, too, have been identified together in Kingman, Arizona. That's information that came from a confidential source. So early the morning of the 19th, they left the Junction City, Kansas motel, the Dreamland Motel, proceeded to Oklahoma City. They were early. We theorized they wanted to be there precisely at 9 o'clock because that's the maximum number of casualties. At 8.25, they pulled into a Firestone parking lot, sat there until 8.35. The attendant at the lot has identified McVeigh as the driver and has also identified the passenger as John Doe too. They then proceeded to the federal building. We feel this bomb, by the way, has to be detonated. We feel that McVeigh dropped off John Doe to a block from the federal building. Then he drove in behind a UPS truck, parked the truck, got out, went around, opened the side door. The bomb is a directional bomb. Remember the damage in the building I showed you a few moments ago? It's a directional bomb. You point it in a direction and you lock it, and it's unbelievably destructive. Then McVeigh had time to get away because John Doe II was having difficulty with his detonator. It just didn't go off right. At 9 o'clock, it wouldn't go off, and it took him until 9.02 and 3 seconds to detonate the bomb. McVeigh, I'm sure, was not aware that he was supposed to be a stool pigeon, a patsy, a pawn, pawn in the game. And he went over behind the YMCA in the alley, 
got in his van and drove off. He was apprehended some 90 minutes later. In the meantime, the bomb was exploded, and uh, John Doe II obviously got away. Now, here's a picture of John Doe II. I'm sure you've seen this before many times. And let's talk about John Doe II. This is an article that appeared May the 10th, 1995, LA Times. Uh, if there wasn't such a serious problem, you know, this would be very laughable. But let's read this article, parts of it, not the whole article. They're talking about John Doe II. Meantime, the government says John Doe II doesn't exist, right? First they said he existed, and they said, oh, that was a GI that was in there a day or two after McVeigh was there. And they, people became confused. He doesn't exist. Folks, just forget about John Doe II. He's not there. Why is the government saying this? The government is saying this because this bomb is too sophisticated. McVeigh did not have the capability or the knowledge or the experience to put a bomb of this sophistication together. It takes a circuit board to detonate it with the detonator. Now, if the government, if it comes out and it's made public that McVeigh put this bomb together, that means he had to have a lot of special training, and, the, and it, doesn't, it doesn't back him up. His training does not back him up. So therefore, what we're talking about is people beyond McVeigh and beyond Nichols who are involved in this bombing. Let's talk about John Doe II. Read this. Let's read this together. Investigators, meantime, began to fear that they were given a false lead in the description of a long-sought suspect known as John Doe No. 2, who was said to have accompanied McVeigh to the Junction City, Kansas, rider truck rental franchise on April 17th to rent the vehicle allegedly used in the bombing. Some are even advancing the theory that John Doe II was Nichols, who bears little resemblance to the FBI's composite drawing of the suspect, or possibly even Nichols' son, who appears to be as tall as 5'7 and weigh as much as 170 pounds. That's Joshua Nichols, by the way, and I've interviewed him. He doesn't even look like John Doe II, by the way. One source close to the case said that if John Doe II turns out to be Joshua Nichols, the likelihood that, that is that he had an innocuous role but that he could be helpful as a witness in the case. Another source close to the investigation said doubts also are increasing over whether the man who accompanied McVeigh to the Ryder Truck Rental Agency was the same individual that a witness reported seeing with McVeigh as they sped away from downtown Oklahoma City on the morning of the bombing. Investigators had thought that the same person was with McVeigh in both places. The investigators said authorities think that John Doe II could be two people and that different men could have accompanied McVeigh to serve as decoys and confuse investigators trying to trace his movements. He said officials also fear that the descriptions and the composite drawing of the second suspect not only may have resulted from a misdirection, but have also cost them valuable investigative time in the early stages of the manhunt. Describing what kind of uncertainty in the early days of the investigation, the source said, what happens is they went off in misdirection they were looking for a real muscular guy who was tanned, and that was false. So here they were chasing down this false lead, several false leads. It's got to be a very small conspiracy, he added, because with a big conspiracy, you can't keep your, this under wraps. 
They're right there. They're not going to keep it under wraps either. Under the assumption, he said, investigators have a theory that James Nichols was the brains behind how the bombing scheme would work. Terry Nichols was the expert in building the explosive, and McVeigh was the man who would carry out the plot. McVeigh was not smart enough to build this, the source said. He's a soldier. He's the guy who takes it, parks it, lights it, blows it up. But obviously, there's going to be somebody with him to transfer him out of there, to take him out of there. That accomplished the alleged John Doe II. Could also be someone still unknown to federal investigators. It could be a real loner or a drifter, the source says. I mean, isn't that ridiculous? If you follow the newspaper articles from the beginning to the end and you follow TV, you notice that the government officials who were making the releases made a number of contradictory statements. One statement, five statements down the line from the first statement would contradict that. And I asked a friend of mine, I said, why in the world, how could an intelligent man keep making these same mistakes? And his answer, well, that's cocaine thinking. I mean, think about it, you know. I, I can't say that the people who planned this bombing were on cocaine, but I certainly, uh, if you've had anything to do, any dealings with drugs, uh, you know that they don't think clear, they don't think straight. But so, so what happened is uh, uh, John Doe II, uh, he got away. He does exist, there's no question about it. There's a TV station, NBC affiliate in Oklahoma City, claims to have identified him. He's supposed to be a repatriated Iraqi soldier. And he's filed a lawsuit against uh, the uh, station in Oklahoma City, claiming he isn't John Doe II. Uh, there's been extensive investigation conducted by numerous individuals. Uh, as I said, uh, the editor of the London Telegraph supports me and supports us on our theory on the bomb itself. The government on NBC Dateline, obviously the government, released uh, and worked with NBC Dateline on a, a, a uh, report that they put together. I don't know if you saw it or not. Uh, but uh, they pointed out that the case was solved through 18 months of uh, telephone calls that were made on a Liberty Lobby calling card. I saw the article in the paper, the release of the information about the Liberty Lobby calling card. In the first instance, the government came out and said McVeigh is not talking. Next, the Anti-Defamation League came out and said that they were able to trace McVeigh because he bought a Liberty Lobby calling card and they traced those calls. Now, the truth is, and they also said that he had a Liberty Lobby calling card in his possession at the time he was arrested by the Oklahoma Highway Patrol. When he was arrested by the Oklahoma Highway Patrol, according to a source of mine in the Oklahoma Highway Patrol, he did not have a Liberty Lobby calling card on him. He purchased a Liberty Lobby calling card using a fictitious name. He purchased, uh, he, he registered at the hotel, the Dreamland Hotel, under another fictitious name. He memorized the Liberty Lobby calling card telephone number. I happen to know this from uh, James Nichols, Larry Nichols' brother. And the only way somebody could have known about the Liberty Lobby calling card would be if they were traveling with him and moving in his circles. So somebody in his circles had to tell the government about the Liberty Lobby calling card, the number, et cetera, for them to get their hands on it. As I said, there were like 700 uh, different phone calls that were made off of the Liberty Lobby calling card. Okay, so why is, why is this evil element in our society, in our government, whatever? By the way, let me just make it very clear. There's a lot of good people working in the government. I'm not going to say the whole government's rotten. There's a lot of good ones in there. I know some. Unfortunately, they've been strategically, the, 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 this evil element strategically placed in key positions, 
And uh, there's no question about it, in my opinion, this is what's happened. And if you don't believe me, as I said earlier in the first uh, two hours, check out this book, uh, The Ultimate e the, uh, Elite, Who's Who in the Elite. It tells you who some of these people are. But um, here's what my theory is, and I think I'm right. I know I'm right. I'm confident I'm right. Uh, the uh, anti-terrorism legislation was written in, uh, before George Bush left office. Uh, they needed an incident in order to have it passed. They had the Oklahoma City, the uh, World Trade Center bombing. There weren't enough people killed, apparently. It wasn't passed. And then we had the Oklahoma City bombing. I have contended all along, and I was on CNN last Sunday, by the way, that this was an incident that was created in order to hasten the passage of the anti-terrorism legislation that would further take away our constitutional rights and our civil liberties. I don't think there's any question about it. We've seen the signs. Also, as you recall, right after the bombing, President Clinton came out and said, oh, the militia did this, right? And he blamed the talk show hosts because they were putting out the word. They were getting the word to the public. And then about uh, and the militia started organizing. There was a survey, I understand, and there were uh, the results came out. There were 10 million people that were sympathetic to the militia. And then what did Bill Clinton do? He came out and he said, oops, wait a minute, the militia didn't do this after all. I can imagine he was thinking, how am I going to control 10 million people? I would guess. I don't know. This was uh, some of the proposed, oh, excuse me, this is not the Terrorism Act. To further back up what I'm telling you, that there is a government cover-up. Uh, this is uh, an article that appeared again in the spotlight, October 30, 1995. McVeigh's lawyer claims bombing cover-up. The juror has revealed the indictments were fatal flaw. This is Hoppy Heidelberg. One member of the federal grand jury handed down the indictment has spoken out against the grand jury proceedings. The juror has revealed the indictments were fatally flawed and federal prosecutors withheld vital information from the grand jurors in panel to hear testimony. As a result, Stephen Jones, Richard Burr, and lawyers representing McVeigh have filed a motion seeking dismissal of the indictments. Grand jury is particularly upset that prosecutors stifled the panel from asking questions about the bombing investigation and particularly about the so-called John Doe number two who has never been located and whom federal investigators now contend never existed. The government made a deliberate attempt to cause the grand jury to focus only upon an indictment on Nichols and McVeigh and purposely did not bring to the grand jury evidence which would establish the role of others or a larger conspiracy, Jones said in his motion to dismiss the indictment against McVeigh. The grand juror has stated prosecutors did not seem interested in pursuing leads concerning John Doe number two and did not want members of the panel asking questions about him. The grand juror further stated, he is satisfied that the government knows the identity of the mysterious man linked to the case since a few days after the actual bombing. And the article goes on. And basically what he's saying is that John Doe 2 does exist and that the government is covering up. Now, as a representative, uh, as an investigator working with John DeCamp, John DeCamp was, uh, again, in the scene. This man gets around, believe me. Uh, he is um, Hoppy Heidelberg's attorney. And John asked me to go interview Hoppy Heidelberg. And so I do have attorney-client privilege. I cannot discuss what he told me. But I can say that he, he gave me this information plus much more. So I do have a 
considerable amount of information that cannot be publicly released at this time. This is uh, some of the legislation that was proposed right after the bombing. And uh, some of it's uh, passed, some of it hasn't. Establish a domestic counterterrorism center headed by the FBI. Increased authority to search phone logs, hotels, motels. Federal Crime International Terrorism Committee uh, committed within these United States punishable by death. Expand federal wiretaps and surveillance power. They're all over the place now. I don't know why they want to expand them. Uh, they have uh, a bill that's been passed that gives them indiscriminate authority to, to tap whole neighborhoods at a time. They don't have to have probable cause. Forbids fundraising by organizations the president designates as terrorists. Understand that the new terrorist bill that finally did pass, I uh, do not have a copy of it as yet, but that uh, there's a problem uh, with raising money if you... If you criticize the government, there are certain situations where you can be arrested for criticizing the government. Um, I'm sorry, I apologize for not having the details here right today. Uh, continuing forbids, uh, permits evidence from secret sources to be used in deportation proceedings. Now, um, I think that fairly well covers the Oklahoma City bombing. Uh, the bottom line, of course, is that uh, there are people in the government that know much, have much more information uh, than uh, they are revealing to the American public. And uh, furthermore, uh, they are covering this up. Now, I might mention, uh, I've been asked, uh, what's the time frame on the takeover? Uh, I've talked to sources about this, meaning the takeover, meaning martial law or whatever you want to call it. I don't know that there will ever be a martial law uh, that will be issued by the president, but I... I'm very much concerned because everything points in that direction, as I've pretty well documented tonight. Uh, I've been told that there, he could issue uh, orders for martial law as early as December, and uh, maybe even this coming spring, meaning next spring, 1997. Uh, I might also mention that uh, when we had the, the break after the first two hours, someone came up and gave me these little playing cards, and it's captioned the Illuminati. The New World Order, unlimited edition, a booster stack, and has a pyramid with an eye on it, and it's cards for children on the inside. Here you are right here. Cards for children to, to read, and we're talking again about indoctrination. I was also asked on the break about Ron Brown. Uh, the, the wreckage from the plane was on the other side of the mountain, it was also in the water, committed suicide, uh, shot in the chest, yes. And uh, I don't think, uh, by the way, I was also told that there was a CIA advisor on the plane who for the last five years was a member of a five-man team. He was a six-member, actually, six-man team that keeps the president advised on a daily basis of uh, intelligence activity around the world. And in the first two hours, I forgot to mention that uh, it's been passed. The line item veto has been passed by the uh, Congress and by the, the president. Now can do line item veto and veto any information out of the bill at the end of five days without any checks or balances, then it becomes a law one more step toward totalitarian government. Now I'd like to kind of move 
into another direction. Let's go in and talk about Satanism. I mean, after all, that's part of this whole overall operation. Illuminati, Satanism, drugs, they all overlap. They're like hand in glove. And the person I'm going to concentrate on is a fellow named Aleister Crowley. Uh, he liked to be called Holy uh, or Crowley because it rhymed with Holy, but his real name is Aleister Crowley. He was born in 1875, and as I recall, he died, I think, in 1947. And uh, he died in a walk-up flat. He had been a heroin addict. And his last words were, I am perplexed. He was raised a Christian at Cambridge University. He came to the United States in 1898, joined the Order of the Golden Dawn in Los Angeles, organized chapters of the Oro Temple Orientis, which is satanic in nature, in Los Angeles in 1905. He wrote a number of books in his philosophy, claims to have never been an active member of uh, satanic uh, activity, but uh, his uh, philosophy and his words and his beliefs uh, live on and they are being used uh, by the uh, satanic movement in this country today. Uh, the Process Church was organized, which is also uh, actively and considered uh, a satanic uh, group, uh, 1963 in the United States. Uh, um, Charles Manson was a member of the Process Church, as I recall. Manson was also a member of the Church of Scientology. The Church of Satan was organized in 1973 by Anton LaVey. And the Church of Set, a split from the Church of Satan, was organized by Michael Aquino in 1975. Michael Aquino is a uh, retired colonel in the uh, military and um, has been identified by children who were at the Presidio uh, C Officers Club as uh, a, a abuser of these children. They told their mother about it. Uh, and uh, there was an 18-month investigation by the Army as a result of these children identifying him at the uh, officers' club on that occasion. And, of course, he was uh, acquitted. There was no, uh, actually no indictments and no, nothing ever came of it. Uh, during this investigation, he was transferred to St. Louis, Missouri, where he was in charge of the military records uh, for the um, Army Reserve and the National Guard. And then uh, subsequently he was discharged. He, the last I heard, he was working on a highly classified uh, uh, research project at the University of Arizona in Tucson. There, uh, based on my information and research of the last 16, 17 years, there are 3 million plus practicing Satanists in this country. This is based on information from three different sources. A source in the South Bay Area, Los Angeles, population 200,000, uh, claims that there are 3,000 practicing Satanists there. Another source, Iowa City, Iowa, uh, 100,000 people, population, about 1,500 practicing Satanists in Iowa City, Iowa. Lincoln, Nebraska, another source, claims that there are a town of 200,000, there's uh, about 3,000 practicing Satanists. If you project this figure throughout the United States, it's 1.5% roughly, or a little under 4 million, but to be conservative, I say 3 million practicing members in the country today. Three different sources, a, a, a preacher, a minister, a prison chaplain has told me he estimates between 50 and 60,000 human sacrifices. Two other inmates have estimated 50 to 60,000 human sacrifices by the satanic church and people who are practicing Satanism. Um, they are involved, actively involved in Project Monarch, which is CIA mind control, 
uh, initially named MKUltra. So let's start with Alistair Crawley. We'll start with his book, Magic and Theory and Practice. Uh, this is uh, page 92, and it starts out, Of the Bloody Sacrifice. And then we talk about the blood is the life. And then here's what he says on page 94. It would be unwise to condemn as irrational the practice of those savages who tear the heart and liver from an adversary and devour them while yet warm. In any case, it was a theory of... the ancient magicians, that any living being is a storehouse of energy varying in quantity according to the size and health of the animal and in quality according to its mental and moral character. At the death of the animal, this energy is liberated suddenly. The animal should therefore be killed within the circle or in the triangle, as the case may be, so that its energy cannot escape. An animal should be selected whose nature accords that with that of the ceremony, thus by sacrificing a female lamb one would not obtain any appreciate quantity of the fierce energy useful to a magician who was invoking Mars. In such a case, a ram would be more suitable, and this ram should be virgin. The whole potential of its original total energy should not have been diminished in any way. For the highest spiritual working, one must accordingly choose that victim which contains the greatest and purest force. A male child of perfect innocence and high intelligence is the most satisfactory a suitable victim. We're talking about human sacrifices. I have with me in my hand right now a note to me. I will not identify the source. And it's from an individual who was a high priest in the cult in the past. He's not broken away. He's a born-again Christian. Although my experience as a satanic high priest was with Anton LaVey's Church of Satan, who claims they do not believe in or practice the ritual of human sacrifice. I had access to and have seen this ritual uh, outlined in detail in the real satanic Bible, codenamed Cloven Hoof. The purpose of the ritual, as stated in this book, is for the sole purpose of the high priest and his covert, or grotto, to intake the power of life into themselves as their life force leaves the body, much like in the series of the Highlander, where the immortal who serves the head of another immortal gathers and takes in that immortal's life force energizing him. Contrary to the popular belief that this ritual is to pay homage to Satan or to receive favor, this ritual is for self-reasons. The homage ritual is entirely a different one altogether and usually involves a female virgin, sometimes a chosen member of the group, or an enemy of the group as a victim. The power ritual is usually done with a young child or infant or it is believed that the life force is greater in those who are termed innocent in nature. In both cases, the sacrificial ritual, a deep incision beginning at the sternum, sternum area of the chest, is made with a long blade sacrificial dagger. The cut is then brought downward to the belly button, and a vertical incision is made across the abdomen, intersecting the first cut, forming an upside-down cross. Depending on the denomination of Satanism, there are several. In some cases, some of the internal organs and parts of the victim's body are consumed by the group as it is believed that immersed sexual powers 
strength and psychic powers can be ordained through this process. As sickening as this may sound, unfortunately, is a reality. Other parts of the victims are warm as, uh, or charm, or worn as charms or saved to be used in spell casting. Be it understood that the victim is fully conscious and aware as this ritual is being performed. The blood, the greatest source of life and most needed bodily fluid, is concerned by all, consumed by all from a sacrificial chalice. This, I hope this helps uh, see, shed some light on the grisly going ones which occur in this world of the occult as others set by uh, uncomfortable unaware. A former son of darkness, now a child of the true light, Jesus Christ. That's a uh, living testimonial. Okay, let's talk some more about Alistair Crowley. The law is for all. Now we're talking about sexual abuse here. Moreover, the B666 advises that all children shall be accustomed from infancy to witness every type of sexual act, as also the process of birth, lest a falsehood fog and mystery stupefy their minds whose error might thwart uh, and misdirect the growth of their subconscious system of self-symbolism. Well, make shame, shyness, cowardice, and hypocrisy the conditions of success in life. It may therefore be considered improper as a general rule for your sexual gratification to destroy, deform, or displease any other star. Mutual consent to the act is a condition thereof. It must, of course, be understood that such consent is not always explicit. There are cases when seduction or rape may be emancipation or initiation to another. Such acts can only be judged by their results. We're talking about initiation and emancipation. That's how they justify their sexual abuse of the children, by the way. These are the eight basic holidays. The real holiday for Satanism is the person's birthday. I don't know, you want to copy those down? Why don't you see me afterwards and we'll give them a copy. I'll give you a copy of them so we can keep this rolling. Now, we talked about missing children earlier. Here's your Reader's Digest article. Reader's Digest, missing children, 100,000 children a year. Few known facts are appalling. Thousands are murdered annually. The number of missing children is rising, and no one is keeping an accurate account. Now, I've had a number of um, interesting cases that I've handled in the past, and one of them is the McMartin case. The McMartin case uh, was a, a ritual abuse allegations by children at the McMartin Preschool, Manhattan Beach, California. The case broke in 1983. child came home and told his mother that he'd been abused. Uh, other children came forward. There was some publicity. And uh, the long and short of it is uh, that uh, the kids claimed, among other things, that there were tunnels under the school. They claimed that they were taken down into the tunnels and uh, molested, that they were witnessing human sacrifices in the tunnels and elsewhere. They were taken up into a tunnel at, of the uh, bathroom of the triplex next door, and, uh, and it was a trap door in the bathroom, taken out in the automobiles, and uh, prostituted in the community. We're talking about two, three, and four-year-old children. Uh, 
These are certain allegations. They also claim that they were, uh, some of them claim that they were taken to an airport, obviously uh, nearby Hawthorne Airport, about 10 minutes away, placed in jets and flown to Crestline, um, which they didn't say Crestline, flown into the mountains uh, where they were uh, witnesses to uh, sexual abuse and ritual abuse matters. And now, um, the day that the case went to trial, excuse me, not the day that the case broke, when it was made public, was made public, the day after the case was made public, the property at this location burned down. This is an abandoned satanic site in Crestline, California. I called the prosecutor, and I told the prosecutor I may have located the site where the children claimed they were taken, and if you like, I'd be glad to take you there, and then the children can identify it. The prosecutor told me she was not interested. But this is a circle right here. There was some writing in the circle. I didn't photograph that. These are some ovens that were on the site. This was built on the side of the mountain, by the way. Uh, there were... Uh, there were some steel clamps that were in on one of these, uh, these this brick wall, and it appeared that shackles had, had been attached to them at one time. This is the uh, an underground dungeon. I went down here myself. Uh, there was a door up above. It wasn't a door. It was uh, there was concrete above that, and then you had to go into a small opening. It was about eight by ten. Uh, there's uh, satanic writing on the wall, as you can see, and uh, a frightening situation if you knew you were going to be sacrificed, certainly. Uh, this is uh, some satanic symbols. Notice the similarity. Can you see that? Oh, it should be the other way around. There you go. I think that does it, doesn't it? Okay. That shows you the the outline. Now I'm going to read this upside down. Is that all right? No, I'm not going to do that. Okay. This is uh, Belial. I think you pronounce it that way. A mighty king created next after Lucifer. Appears in the form of a beautiful angel seated in a chariot of fire and speaking with a pleasant voice. He fell first amongst the superior angels who went before Michael and other heavenly angels. He distributes preferences for senatorships, causes favors of friends and foes, and gives excellent familiars. We must have, he must have offerings and sacrifices made to him. And we have another one here. See that? Right? See that in the similar there? And this is Asmodee. A strong and powerful king appears with three heads. The first like a bull, the second like a man, and the third like a ram. He has a serpent's tail, the web feet of goose, and he vomits fire. He rides an infernal dragon, carries lance and penum, and is the chief of the power of Ammon. He must be invoked bearer bareheaded or otherwise he will deceive. 
He gives the ring of virtues, teaches arithmetic, uh, geometry, and other handicrafts, answers all questions, makes men invisible, uh, indicates the places of concealed treasures, and guards them if within the domination of Amamon. Star, five-pointed star. This is uh, a rock, a large rock that uh, had been uh, broken. And this was a circle. Of, this was these were rocks with concrete, and it was filled with concrete. I don't know what they use that for. One of their ceremonies, obviously. And um, this was up in, just in front of the house uh, that burned down. And you would have, uh, this looks out over the valley. This is this built right on the side of the mountain. This is all filled, by the way. And uh, this, whole, this went down, must have gone down two, 300 feet, these rocks in the fill. So it cost them an awful lot of money. Now, this is San Bernardino, California. And uh, this is the road that leads up to the mountain, and I drove up on this mountain, on this road, and you could see this uh, enclave on the side of the mountain. That's looking from the, where the, the back of the, you would, if, you, if I stepped back out, I'd gone down the mountain, right? That's looking in the other direction. There's my associate, Judy, and the house was up in there. Now, there's a street in front of the house, you cannot see down over the hill from the street, so it's very safe apparently for them. Well, how clever. Didn't we do have a house? HR 666, right? Now this next case, which I'm going to describe to you and give you details on, is uh, the Lou Bear case. I'll tell you what, before I give you the Lou Bear case, I'll talk a little more. I mentioned the McMartin case. Let me talk some more about that. In um, 1983, the case broke, as I mentioned. This uh, McMartin school was built in 1966. The children claimed, as I said, that there were tunnels under the school. They were taken into the tunnels. The district attorney went out and looked for tunnels could not find them. In the spring of 1990, the property was sold from the McMartins to the defense attorney, or given to the defense attorney, Danny Davis, because he said he was broke. He only made $3 million on the case. And it was sold from Danny Davis to a contractor who was, uh, decided he wanted to build a, a building, an office building on there. When we learned, that some of the parents and I learned that uh, a contractor had access to the property, we felt we could get access to it. And so we contacted him. I actually signed a contract with him. And we went in. He gave us two, two weeks to go in and look for tunnels. As I said, the DA had looked for tunnels uh, some several years earlier and uh, had not found them. So uh, I hired an archaeologist, Dr. Gary Stickle at UCLA. And we, we began our, our tunnel dig. The parents were very nice. They went out and got coffee and ham and cheese sandwiches for us. But I wouldn't let them get near any of the evidence. And Dr. Gary Stickle brought in his own team of archaeologists. 
and all I did was coordinate the project. He actually did the scientific work. We found tunnels, ladies and gentlemen. Here's an idea of what we found. We found a nine-foot-wide subterranean entrance went into the west wall of the dog room. The, uh, the entrance had a, a live avocado tree on the right, a dead one on the left, which meant that when they opened up the entrance, they had to cut the tree. They cut the tree root. An interesting facet was this. There was a Disney bag, copyright 1982, found four and a half feet below the classroom floor and three to six inches in from the entrance and under the foundation of classroom floor. The Disney bag was found right in the mouth of the tunnel where the kids said they went in. Now, the way that they, the archaeologists were able to say that there were tunnels there that had been filled in is because the dirt that was brought in to fill the tunnels was formed from the natural soil. And right in, at this location, this copyright 1982 plastic Disney bag, sandwich bag, was at that precise location where the entrance of the tunnel was. Ken Lanning, the FBI behavioral science expert, quote-unquote, out of Quantico, claims, has publicly made the claim, I've been told this, I don't know if he said this or not, that I went out and found this little bag and put it there, placed it there. Not true. Uh, the tunnel uh, was actually 30 inches wide, 44 to 46 inches deep, with the top of the tunnel 30 inches under the classroom floor. The uh, footing between classroom 3 and 4 was arched where the tunnel passed underneath and 12 inches shorter <coughs> in depth at this location than some footing, the same footing 12 feet to the north. This is significant because it would indicate that the tunnels uh, were built at the time uh, that the house, that the school was built, it was part of it because they actually arched the foundation when they put the foundation in. But I think that's very important. And uh, the nine-foot wide chamber was found along the channel under classroom four. There was a seven-foot tunnel extending into the triplex next door. The children, as I said, were taken, claimed they were taken up into a trap door of the bathroom of the triplex and taken out into the community. Uh, there was a crawl space of about 18 to 20 inches. We got one of our thinner and skinnier uh, members to go in there with the camera. And the bathtub actually protruded below the surface of the floor, and you could see where the floor had been sawed out. So there was definitely a, a, a trap door there of some sort. Other significant uh, facts, a small white plastic plate with three pentagrams hand-drawn on the top of the of green paint was found. I've got copies of that. I'll show you that in just a minute. Many other artifacts were found. There were no doorknobs on classroom three, only a deadbolt lock. Each classroom had an on and off light switch labeled fire alarm. System did not connect to a fire station, but was used as an alert within the school. In other words, if somebody came around, somebody could push the alarm, and it would notify either somebody in the office or somebody else, uh, wherever they were, uh, that there was uh, intruders or strangers in the area. There are more than 2,000 artifacts were found under the school uh, floor, including over 100 animal bones. Uh, it was kind of an interesting story because we were given two weeks uh, to get off the property. The man wanted to build an office building there and was able to stall him for 34 days. And I couldn't get the archaeologist to say, come on, there's tunnels there, Gary. You know there's tunnels there. He said, no, no, I want to make sure, I want to make sure. Well, after all, I don't blame him. But the, uh, the contractor told me, look, I don't care if you find tunnels or not. Tomorrow at noon, we're bringing the bulldozers up there and we're going to level that building. And you better not be in it because you'll go down with the building. So the morning of the 34th day, Dr. Gary Stickle 
finally said, okay, I will admit that I think there's tunnels here. There were tunnels here one time that had been filled in. And we literally walked out of there, had a press conference and walked out of there as the bulldozers dozers came in and tore it down. Before the bulldozers came in and tore it down, we called the district attorney's office. Okay. This was in the middle of the second trial. The first trial, Virginia McMartin had been acquitted. Ray Bucky, the son, was a uh, hung jury. The second trial was in process right at that time. They sent an investigator out, Perez was his name, is his name. And he got out of the car, I greeted him, he said, look, I'll, I don't want to talk to you. I said, this is like the Democratic rally I was at in Galveston, right? Nobody wants to talk to me. I said, why don't you want to talk to me? He says, I don't want to talk to you because all you'll do is argue with me. I said, okay, I'll just keep my mouth shut. You come in and talk to the archaeologist. So I took him in to talk to the archaeologist, and he argued with the archaeologist. He said, there's no tunnels there. And here you can imagine somebody like an investigator arguing with an expert witness who has a doctor's degree in archaeology. Anyway, we prevailed. As far as I'm concerned, we have the documentation. They didn't use the information in the trial. Now, what did these kids say? Well, they identified professional football players. They identified uh, professional baseball players. They identified an, uh, some actors. They identified the son of one of the most prominent politicians in Los Angeles. Well, you know, no wonder, huh? How about that? Now, there is where the tunnel entrance was, right there. The kids said there were rabbit cages there. And I'll show you more about that in a minute. The tunnel, we documented the tunnel went like this. There was a chamber there. It went across here. Here's where the arch was, right there. We theorized that the tunnel went here. We didn't have time to dig for that. And uh, there's, there's over into the property next door. This is the triplex. This is about where the trap door in the bathroom was. Here's a live avocado tree. Now keep, keep this in mind because I'm going to show you some pictures in a minute. Live avocado tree. This was a play, play area right in here. We actually slept up there. We had control of that property for 24 hours for 34 straight days. Slept up there in the dirt. Now this is the entrance. There's the live avocado tree root. The avocado tree, avocado tree was over in here. The dead root was over here, which would indicate that they had to cut it, right, like this. Live, dead. That's the plays, child's plate that we found in the, in the sandbox. It was buried about six inches under. We really did a job on, this, on the property. There's the, um, excuse me, there's the arch. There's the, um, the tunnel went from, this is classroom four over there, but on the other side of the arch is classroom three. Notice it's arched, just as I said. There's uh, yours truly looking up from down below. We actually brought in concrete cutters to cut that floor up. And uh, we did a job on it. I graduated at the University of Nebraska, so I wore my Nebraska baseball hat for good luck. You see it there for all you KU fans, K-State fans, Missouri fans. This town's full of them. 
I might just show you. I got a, I have a number of symbols here. This is uh, the horned hand, sign of recognition between those who are in the occult. May also innocently be used by those who identify with um, heavy metal music. That, that was at the inauguration, when he was inaugurated. He was, uh, I've seen the video of it. He was waving like this to the crowd at the last minute. He went down and went like this for a second. Okay, that tells you a little bit about the cults and satanic cults and uh, preschools. By the way, um, Dr. Roland Summit, psychiatrist at UCLA, has told me that he's also involved in these issues, that he has intelligence information and otherwise, that there are more than 50 preschools around the country where they claim that there's been sexual ritual abuse and tunnels are located under the schools, over more than 50 of them. The uh, McMartin family traveled all over the world because they were experts in putting preschools together, organizing them showing them how to build the schools and so forth. There were more than 5,500 children went through this McMartin school from the time it was built in 1966 until 1983 when this uh, incident was alleged to have taken place. Um, <clears throat> the cults use these two, three, and four-year-old children for two, several purposes. Number one, they use them for pornography, pornographic films. There's a lot of money, $10 billion a year uh, pornographic business in this country. They use them in their initiation. They consider them initiated into the cult even though their parents don't know about it. And uh, they, uh, they use them uh, as, um, uh, as um, part of their ceremonies. In other words, they need children in certain ceremonies. Um, now, in, I've, been, I've been asked, I've been told, well, now, don't tell me the kids, if they witnessed a human sacrifice or the sacrifice of a baby, that they wouldn't go home and tell their parents about it. But I'll tell you what a little girl in the McMartin case told me. And she actually, she told her mother, and her mother told me. She told her mother that <clears throat> she witnessed these sacrifices, and that on one occasion, after her mother dropped her off in the morning and before the mother picked her up at night, she was taken to her bedroom, back to her home. They went into the house. They sexually molested her in the home, in the bedroom. They left a little token there. They took her little baby kitten, took the kitten into the school, and had a ceremony and sacrificed the kitten in front of her. Then they told the little girl, they said, if you talk to your mother or your father, we're going to do this to your mother and your father and your little brother. Now don't tell me that a kid's going to talk under those conditions. They're petrified. They also talked about men coming in and sexually molesting them, dressed in uh, police uniforms, dressed as Santa Claus, and so forth. So now I'd like to discuss the Lou Bear case with you. This is a case out of Philadelphia. I worked a number of these cases, by the way, and I can't begin to give them all to you because I think we'd be here all night. Uh, but this is a case where the father was divorced from the mother, and uh, the children would uh, come visit him, and he noted signs of satanic ritual abuse with the kids, uh, just from their actions and their talking and some of the things that they were doing. 
And there are certain signs, by the way, but we don't need to present them here. Again, we don't have time. So he went to the courts and tried to get relief from the courts, tried to get the kids taken away from the mother. And he did not receive any satisfaction there. So Lou Bear grabbed his kids one day when they were visiting with him and disappeared, went into the underground down in Atlanta, Georgia. Well, the FBI, in my day, we were involved in kidnapping, extortion, bank robberies, skyjackings, as I said earlier. Well, now they're involved in domestic cases. And they go out and look for these children. And they go out and look for these parents. And they came down and arrested Lou Bear, and they took the children away from him. The last time I talked to Lou, he had not seen his children in four years. But in an attempt to get, have his children come see him for visitation, he went back into court with these allegations. And the evidence that he had, he had some medical evidence, but also the five, six-year-old child had drawn some pictures, some pictures that were unsolicited by him or by anybody else. And uh, so as an expert, so-called expert on Satanism, I was asked to examine these pictures and give my opinion on it. I flew to Philadelphia, examined the pictures, and uh, concluded that I felt the children had been exposed to some sort, sort of, uh, or degree of satanic activity. And these are the pictures. Now, when I was uh, this age, I was drawing airplanes and cars, and my little female friends were drawing flowers and uh, other things of that nature. And in this particular instance, uh, this is a, a picture that he drew of a man on an altar. Notice the blood and so forth. By the way, children who have been sexually abused will oftentimes draw the genitals, whereas if uh, they've never been abused and they draw a nude body, they never draw the genitals. Now, this is, uh, again, a picture unsolicited. Uh, people, fire, throws a baby in the fire. This is apparently an altar. Bone, liver, blood, kitty. Matt Bear is the kid's name. Drawn August 24th, 89. Again, this is uh, obviously a ritual outside, outdoors, table. Fire, people, devil crossed out. Again, a ritual, knife. People have no cloth on, he says. Oftentimes they're in the nude. Oftentimes they wear um, robes, and they're nude underneath the robes. This is the most revealing of all. I mentioned earlier about the goat head. This would indicate that the child was uh, exposed to a, a higher degree of satanic activity than the normal. Uh, these are three to six inches, three to six feet tall, made out of wood. Oftentimes, it's a goat head on the top. That's what I would have used as, in my testimony. By the way, I made a second trip after, back to uh, the courts and when they had a hearing, and um, the uh, judge wouldn't even let me in the courtroom. I sat outside on a bench all day long. Here's the article on the McMartin Tunnel. McMartin digs suspended, no evidence of secret tunnels. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, let's see, we've got uh, three minutes, and I'm going to just answer as many questions as I can. How was the fire started in Waco? Um, I don't know. I, I, I was told that the fire was started by the tanks coming in and 
using gas. Again, I don't have documentation on that. Please explain the $1 billion per day to Russia. Why $1 billion and why to Russia? I don't know. I've got to talk to an economist about that. I just learned that in the last few days. Why are they postponing or delaying the trials of, the, of uh, McVeigh and Nichols in Colorado? I don't know that one either. I'm not doing so well, am I, on these questions? You'll have to ask the judge that. Uh, do you have any updates on Anton LaVey? Whereabouts condition? The last I heard, he was in the Bay Area. I've been on some TV shows with his daughter, Zin LaVey. Uh, what was the White Rose, what was White Rose, Black Rose? That was a drug operation um, that I explained earlier. What's your opinion on Nixon and Eisenhower? Uh, I don't think I have enough time to give that one. Tell us more about the concentration camps. They are being built on the military basis. There's no question about it. I have documentation about this. How do you feel about the national curfew? Um, I, I, I don't trust anything that Bill Clinton says about national curfew or anything else. I think it's a facade to try to get votes. And also, how about the child they're talking about adopting? I want to have a bumper sticker out. I'm going to say, Bill, is it one of yours? <laughs> are, you afraid of, are you afraid of being eliminated like Kennedy or speaking at well? Um, no, not really. I, uh, I, 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 I've been very fortunate. I've been, there have been attempts on my life. I've had uh, uh, situations where I had uh, uh, tight security problems. And I've made it so far, and I feel that uh, God is watching over me. And that is all I can tell you right now. Time has just run out. Thank you very much. You're listening to DelmarvaStudios.net. Over all of our ads, we have all the tones, all the codes, all the fanciest stuff, all the best satellites. And this is where you can hook right in and just... Call your local TV station, your local cable station, and say, hey, Alex Jones' show, David Knight and Owen Schroyer and Election Countdown that's ongoing that Robert Barnes is going to start co-hosting again next week with John Lorraine, 7 to 9. It's all live, and it's all free to air. The TV and cable is, because I completely control that. I'm able to do it. So you can put your local commercials over all of our ads. We have all the tones, all the codes, all the fanciest stuff, all the best satellites. And this is where you can hook right in and, just contact our affiliate folks at infowars.com forward slash affiliate. And the globalist demonization campaign against Infowars, uh, I knew that their plan was going to roll out. I knew they were just getting rid of us first before they shut everybody else down. So I knew if we could hold on, we would explode on the other side and really have a shot at defeating the globalist. That has now happened. Again, over 50 cable stations, some huge, in just the last week. Uh, and again, they're happy for us to advertise them, but we do that. The left might send a hateful email or threaten something. So all we do is we just don't promote it. We don't list the affiliates. The left's already gotten their names, gotten their info. It, it, it doesn't hurt anybody. It's the mouse that roars. It's, it's just an example of how the NFL bends over and everybody else bends over the threat of the left. But with traditional talk radio and then local cable and TV stations, they are giving the left a big finger. And uh, I, I'm never really busy promoting ourselves, though I need to at this critical juncture uh, because we're exploding so fast. And I want to thank everybody for your support, keeping us in this position to be here at this moment of uh, vindication. But we are going to get some quotes from TV stations and radio stations the next week through affiliate relations so we can quote them saying, we put Alex Jones on in fill in our city on one of our sub HD channels. 
that had no ratings, and now it's the number one show in the city, not just our station. I mean, that's the stories I've got out of New York, upstate New York, out of Rochester, places like that. That's the reports we've got out of places like Kansas City, Missouri, and Wichita, Kansas, and Oklahoma City, and 